the whole point is he is irredeemable and the system we have is also irredeemable. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is celebrated author Victor Laval, known for a number of novels, novellas, and short stories, including The Changeling and The Ballad of Black Tom, more recently, which won about every award that you can win in the sci-fi fantasy genre. Right now, coming off a bit of a victory lap for the first issue of Sabretooth, his new miniseries at Marvel, digging into the hell beneath Krakoa. Victor, how are you today? I'm doing real well, and I'm real happy to be here and happy I'm coming in after the issue dropped instead of beforehand. <laughs> I was like, let's do it after so that yes. we can actually talk about the issue. But the critical response to that issue so far has been really glowing. I absolutely loved it. What's the experience been like for you? You've done comics work before, but this is your first Marvel work, if I'm first not mistaken, Marvel, right? first big to anything. Yeah, and uh, I have to say, like, so I had the the issue done months ago, right? Right. We were all done. The original plan was that it was going to come out. The first issue would have dropped right, like, in the middle of Inferno. Mm-hmm. And I think smartly they made the choice to drop it after that. Absolutely. Because uh, there are some things in Inferno, like especially about Doug, that allows, number one, to make more sense um, about the willfulness of Doug and Warlock and Krakoa. The way that Doug interferes with the yes. Council's activities here, we saw a bit of that in the X-Men Green story with Nature Girl. Yes. But I do think that the reveal in Inferno 4 of how extensively he is sort of doing his own thing or that he and Warlock and Krakoa are doing their own thing on behalf of the island and their hive that they're creating themselves, one might say. I think that the reveal in Inferno 4 would have been less impactful if this issue had already come Absolutely. out. So I think it makes sense to delay it until after. Well, and also, you know, uh, since this is still all coming from the Hickman era, there was a way, like I had already had that planned but there's a way that it feels like more of a handoff from Hickman Yes, to say like, hey, it happened in Inferno under his watch and it's also happening here as opposed to if it came out before and people go like, well, Hickman never said that or none of the other like big, you know, Jerry, Al, Tinny, uh, Ayala, none of them showed that. So this can't be real. Right. So it was very good to have that. In the same way that Excess of Wolverine picks up right at the end of Inferno 4. Yes. Ben Percy, when he was on last month, talked about how it's sort of a baton pass. And I yes. think that that is a smart way to handle it when you have a creator regarded with such esteem leaving, when you have someone who was given a sort of auteurist control over this franchise that no one has had since Chris Claremont. Because mm -hmm. even Grant Morrison, who reshaped the whole franchise, it was in one book that the other books didn't always link up with. <laughs> right. And the minute that they left, Marvel was like, actually, none of that happened. So, right. you know, that, <laughs> it's a different level of creative control that Hickman had for corporate comics, obviously, with the caveat of like, he doesn't own any of the characters 
characters. There's only so much you can do. But I think it was smart to say, this is a new story. This is something new. But it's building off of the things that happened previously. Yes. I mean, one of the reveals that was most satisfying to me in your first issue, and by the way, guys, obviously, if you haven't gleaned this yet, spoilers for the first issue of Sabretooth. Read it <laughs> if you haven't yet. It's very good. The Exiles, as they've been solicited, which is a great reuse yeah. of yeah. a team name. I love when we reuse those. Also a team name very associated with Sabretooth. Yes. I was struck, I think maybe apart from Oya, who I think we have seen on Krakoa once or twice, these are all characters, well, Third Eye's new, but these are all characters we have not seen on Krakoa. I have said, where is Necra on Krakoa several times. (laughs) Yeah, I have, because she's one of the (laughs) very weird characters like Skyne or Mm. Firestar even, who are like not X-Men characters, but are mutant characters. So it's like, what are they up to exactly? And she's such a chaotic element whenever you put her in a story that it was like one of those characters where you go how is Krakoa and Amnesty working out for Necra you know but Madison Jeffries is one I've mentioned several times because it was conspicuous to me that he was absent it does feel like these characters were chosen because I mean even Oya who again I think has made a couple cameos people have gone what's she up to like she used to be such a big character it makes so much sense when suddenly you get here and this story is set months and months ago in the world. In the world, right. Of the story. And so it's like, oh, well, they weren't in the story because they've been down here. Right. That I mean, absolutely that. <laughs> and also, you know, I think um, Zeb Wells' uh, Hellions was also a great touchstone for me. I loved that series. My favorite of the Everybody. last several years. Yeah, right? it's incredible. And part of what I loved and took real inspiration for was, for lack of better terms, like the the big toys or the famous toys were all taken. Right. Was so brilliant about Zeb's choice. There was to say like, well, you don't just say, well, then I can't do anything or like I have to just do like B-roll stories for those people. You say instead, I get to play with all these people who a lot of people probably don't even know. I get to tell the biggest nanny in the orphan maker story ever, ever. told. ever. You look at that cast in particular, the characters who are the most major famous characters in that book, besides Mr. Sinister, who's not on the team, are Psylocke, but it's not Betsy. It's Kanan, a character who has been dead for 30 years and is only now being sort of defined. And Havoc, a character I love, but not Mm. exactly an a-list X-Men character, except outside of maybe a name recognition. I mean, he was in one of the movies or whatever. That's right. He's had a pretty rough go of it for the last 30 years of public. I mean, really, since the Siege Perilous, it's been kind of a parade of indignities for Alex Summers. So taking him to his lowest possible point while taking Kanan to sort of her highest possible point as a character. And then around them, like the sales pitch, if it wasn't Zeb Wells, who we all know is a genius, Mm -hmm. it would have been hard to get people to buy that. I think that's right. After them, like the most notable character in it is probably Wild Child, yeah. Scalp Hunter, who we can't, we're not going to say that code name anymore. So yeah. like, <laughs> even that name recognition is gone. Right, it's Grey right. Crow now. Grey Crow, the character formerly known as this yes. term that is now somewhat, maybe let's not. 
it's a testament to that. And I'm excited to see what happens here with these characters. I mean, I've referred to Madison Jeffries on this podcast several times as off-brand Forge because they brought him in. He's an Alpha yes. Flight character for people not familiar. He has powers very similar to Forge or WizKid. Yes. And they brought him in in the Utopia era because Forge was dead briefly due to a story that nobody needs to worry about. And we needed someone to be doing that. Right. So he is a character who is like not quite ever made it there. Oya is a character who was supposed to be sort of the Kitty Pride or Jubilee type character of her moment at one point. But I actually think Quentin Choir took up a lot of the oxygen. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a good point. And so instead of the girl getting to be the main character as we're used to in X-Men since Claremont, Quentin Quire sort of took over that Wolverine and the X-Men period. And she was his love interest, which was very hmm. peculiar to me. Right. The other character who's introduced as like a Kitty Pride and Jubilee type, but never really gets to go all the way is Angel Salvador. And I guess it is yes. both times the black girl who isn't allowed that level of space within the franchise. So I think that's a character with a lot of potential that I'm really excited to see you explore. Necra We've talked about this offline, but like Necra's origins are from one of the most racist stories I think has ever it's, appeared in a Marvel comic. But it's a very, like a very, um, I, I, at least as I read it, like whatever this would mean in air quotes, well-meaning race story. And it's the kind of thing that doesn't age well. And at least for me is the most exciting kind of thing to sort of take again. Well, right. The second I saw her, I was like, of course, Laval is using Necra because it reminded me of The Ballad of Black Tom, which right. I really loved. I think that's the first of your stuff I read. Yeah. Ballad of Black Tom, for people not familiar, is a reimagining and expansion of an H.P. Lovecraft story called The Horror at Red Hook, which is famously H.P. Lovecraft's most racist story, which if you're looking at the bibliography of H.P. Lovecraft is a bit of a tall order. I think <laughs> even his... Biggest fans will admit that his views on race were, let's say, not super enlightened. The Vow to Black Tom focuses on a black character and makes that story something very different. So Necra and the Mandrill. And if you want to know more about Necra, listeners, the Zalagang will be thrilled to know that I have scheduled a Necra episode for oh, this that's summer. Great. I'm waiting until this miniseries has finished out because we want to see where she ends up. But this is a character who has not been in that many X-Men comics. So I was like, you know what? Let's just, I have a guest who is really was like, let's do Necra. I was like, nice. let's absolutely do Necra. Very nice. But so Necra, for people not familiar, just like real quick before we get into the actual topics of this episode, <laughs> is a character where the point is she and the mandrel, she's a black woman, but her mutation is that she's like a stereotype of a white person. Like she becomes mm -hmm. literally a vampire and she has chalk white skin. And then the mandrel is a white person, but his mutation is he basically becomes the stereotype of like the marauding, sexually violent black man. It's this yeah. very weird. It's weird on those lines, like uh, for the... Black woman who appears white, her skin is white, but she still looks like a woman. And then the mandrill, they're like- Looks like a monkey. a monkey. Yeah. Yeah, he's a monkey head. That's the part where I think, and his power <laughs> is is right. Seduction. I mean, it's That's a very, right. Yes. yeah. Right, because it's not seduction. It's just- No, it's pheromonal control. He yes. overpowers them. In fact, there've been pains taken with pheromonal characters in more recent stories like Daken or Stacey X to yes. indicate that their power only allows them to nudge people rather than overpower their free right. will because right. that evades that problem that, of the right. mandrel. 
well, one problem of the man, yeah. Mandel has many other ones. We'll get into yeah. those in a Necra episode. But I was struck in this issue that when we see Necra, she actually is drawn with, I thought, recognizably black facial features, yes. which I didn't remember seeing with the character. And I was just like, Victor is about to freak it with this character. Like, we're about to finally get something. And the way that the horror of Red Hook is, and I've read it, a rough one. And the Ballad of Black Tom kind of reclaims the power that could be there in this horror story about that moment and that immigrant community. There is something in Necra that obviously is interesting or she wouldn't keep coming back, which she does. Well, you know, I'll tell you the thing when we were figuring out character design for some of the books, particularly for Necra, so like Melter, Oya, Madison Jeffries, they largely stayed the same. Yeah. But uh, Necra, her original one issue was her costume. Her original costume is basically nudity with some pasties. That's right. It was like a dental floss. Yeah. So when we were talking all together and I was sending Leonard Kirk some ideas, the person who the revamped uh, Necro is based on is a rock and roll singer named Betty Davis. Who just passed, who just unfortunately. Passed. Yes. And who was like this amazing- It's a high caller. Yes, yeah. That's right. And so if you look at Betty Davis, like I sent Leonard a bunch of her costumes and stuff about her. And then he came back with this and we worked it through a little bit. And it was this idea of revitalizing her, number one, so that on some level, if you're aware, you code her as a Black woman, even though she's fair-skinned. Right. And then two, that she's got this Betty Davis rock star power, as opposed to the old, to me, you know, it feels a little bit more like a male gazy, lascivious. Well, she was a Shanna the She-Devil villain. Yes. Like, it yeah, was very right. much, a, you know, jungle girl aesthetic. Yes, but yeah, I mean, if you just make her chalk white and give her the high pony, the funniest thing, and I was like, this is how you know you're living in a golden age of X-Men comics. When the teaser on AIPT's X-Men Monday went out of the Exiles in Silhouette with mm -hmm. Xavier, people started debating whether <laughs> the character in the center with the high pony was Necra or Gideon. And that was how I knew. I was like, the fact that a solicit for a comic means that we're now explaining to newer fans, here's who Necra and Gideon are, purely because there's a high pony in the picture. Yeah. Like, that's how you know we are eating well. Yeah. And then someone said to me, what if it's Birdie? And then I flipped oh, yes. out because I yes. was like, that is the third high pony in this franchise. Yes. There might be a different way to uh, wrestle with... The Birdie of it all. The Birdie of it all. Complicated character. In this miniseries, yes. Well, I quite enjoy with her Jersey accent from Marvel versus Capcom. Yeah. But yeah, Madison Jeffries, I can only assume, is down there because he was getting down with a robot. <laughs> that is the... Uh, I've, I've heard of... Uh, had a couple people... Uh, <laughs> like, you know, the fun of... like I feel like uh, the fun of telling specifically comic book stories at this level, at like the Marvel DC level, is that you do have people who will spend time just guessing right absolutely what is the reason for this what is the reason for and it's just so fun to be to also hear like uh, i know what my the narrative uh, that i have in mind is oh of course right but the pleasure is saying like oh that's also good or that's also good or yeah you got it exactly right so it might be that it might be something it might else. be a million other things yes he's an iffy guy Madison. Yes. I do like the sort of popsick squish, ah, ah, Cicero lip shits bit at the bottom where it does seem like maybe Oya's there and is innocent. Right. With the way that the dialogue overlays them. This isn't what you expected to find for Madison, who's the right. scientist, or right. what you deserved to Oya. I think yes. that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, 
All that to say, read the first issue of Sabretooth if you haven't yet. I mean, it's very Victor Laval. Your earliest novel, The Ecstatic, is sort of also about, like, is this schizophrenia? Is this something more supernatural? Like, what's going on with me? And that question of perception, what is real and what is unreal, sort of goes... I mean, The Changeling is about the myth of The Changeling, which is like, is this mental illness or is this a supernatural force, right? It's definitely a theme. Yeah, and well, it's a theme I always find interesting. So I'm excited to see where this goes. I'd love to get into your origin story with the X-Men, how you came to feel a connection to this franchise. And then once we get to the present, how you got into the X office, which was a treat for fans of your prose work. A pleasant surprise. I was very excited. Well, so uh, to go back to the origin story with the X-Men, I feel like it's, uh, for my age, a a common one. It's God Loves, Man Kills. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was uh, in particular, so we had a, uh, in my building, we had an older, uh, a kid named Michael who was around my age and then his older brother, Kevin. And in the sort of uh, the ways of older brothers or uncles or dads or something like that, he would ha- he had Batman comics. You know, he, that's where I first read um, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. And then that's also, he had uh, God Loves Man Kills, among other things, uh, Teen Titans, other things like that. But um, I remember he said, like, you guys can read this just, you know, give it back. And um, what really stayed with me at the, was just the out, the beginning of that story was the two children being, like, it wasn't just seeing the two children. I feel like a lesser writer, you would just come across, Magneto would just come across the two children hanging there saying beauty. Yes. But part of all the brilliance of Claremont, right, is he showed you the horror of them hunting down these two children. And it wasn't lost on me that those two children looked a lot like me and my friends. Right, they were black children specifically. Yes, yes. The kids even are asking like, why are you doing this? And then they kill them anyway. Mm-hmm. And I just remember it was like a splash of cold water kind of thing. Like, oh, we're doing this Yeah. in comics. And then as soon as Magneto shows up and is like, these are my children. And then I was like, all right, I'm on Magneto's side. I'm in, yeah. Yeah, and I'm into this comic. And then, so, and then, of course, I enjoyed the story, but then there's also, like, uh, within that, there's two other panels later. I liked the places where the human brushed up against the mutant. So there's the great image when uh, Stryker says, you call that. You call that a human points a at human Nightcrawler. A human points at Nightcrawler. And that stayed with me for that, the power of that. And then the last one, maybe I feel a little bit, a little bit differently about it now. It's when the cop shoots Mm. Stryker, right? Yes. He shoots Stryker and then they just say, what are you doing? And he says, I saw saw a grown man about to kill a little girl. I really appreciated in the comic, the way that Claremont gives the heroic moment. And as a child of maybe eight, 10, 12, whatever I was, the idea of this cop being the regular world hero, I was okay with at the time. I think he's a security guard. So a security guard. Like, it's at okay. least not like an agent he's of the NYPD. state. not yes. NYPD. Right, yeah. <laughs> but just that idea that in even in all this superhero stuff, and I feel like Claremont was so good about this, even in this world of big superheroes, supervillains, all this stuff, he was basically just saying like, regular people should stand up to tyranny mm-hmm. and should stand up to this evil. And that really like rocked me. And that was the beginning of me loving the X-Men. It was the X-Men, but it was also the idea of be decent. 
Evan Narcissus, when he was on the show, talked about God Loves, Man Kills and how it was revelatory at the time to see a superhero comic even care about Black people. Yes. You know, Storm exists, the Falcon exists, these characters exist, but to see it tackled in such a way as to say, like, this matters, this yes. is something that matters. It's unfortunate, I think, that the God Loves, Man Kills sequence that is now best remembered is the sequence with Kitty and Stevie Hunter, where Kitty uses the N-word to try and make a point right. to Stevie Hunter. That moment, I mean, Claremont has even said, he's like, if I could go back, I would change that. <laughs> it hasn't aged well. Yeah, yeah. That story is one of the moments that Claremont most got at the minority metaphor that sometimes I think he danced around or didn't quite get right. Yeah. And outside of that one scene where Kitty explicitly equates, like, this is the same thing, which I don't right. think works. Right. Everything else about it, the point that is made is like, here is this Jewish Holocaust survivor who wanted to save these black children, but couldn't, and all of them are mutants. Yes. For me, as someone who's interested in the intersections and also discontinuities between the black community and the Jewish community in terms of civil rights and all of that stuff, I like the idea of Magneto and these children sort of looking at the reader and saying, we are mutants. Do you understand what right. a mutant is? A mutant is the kind of person who, by no fault of their own, due to the circumstances of their birth is marked for death or oppression by society like do you right. get the commonality it's very complicated and interesting but i know that for a lot of black readers in particular yeah. that story was a real like sit up and take notice kind of moment yeah i mean I, in a way like you mentioned like the the bout of black tom as a sort of wrestling with lovecraft i'm okay with the idea that the creators we love are flawed. Yeah, exactly. As long as we can wrestle with those flaws, keep the good, try to winnow out the bad. And then of course, like the the, the part that is required, I think is, is part of that is in 50 years, no matter how righteous you think you are. Your work is going to come up lacking, gonna, right. Exactly. You're going to have a blind spot. That's a human thing. Well, that's also a good thing. The fact yes. that the culture decades after your work looks back and your and goes, mm, there are some social problems with this means that the social conversation has advanced to such yes. a degree. That's the thing that I hope to illustrate when I'm talking about the historic, when I'm talking retrospectively about work on this show around the same time that Black Tom happened, Ruthanna Emrys started writing mm -hmm. her stuff that grapples very explicitly with Lovecraft's anti-Semitism and Shadow yes. over Innsmouth and all of that stuff. And I just think that there is something very valuable about looking at this work that you love and saying, well, here are the things that are missing in it or the things that it says that I think are wrong. What's a dialogue I can have with that? Right. And with an ongoing superhero universe like this, when you step in to the shoes of people writing them before you were ever born, in some yes. cases, you get a chance to do dialogue with the original text merely by writing this text. Like, you don't need to do a reimagining. You're writing the actual thing. Right. But you're in dialogue by necessity. You know, when you're writing Sabretooth, you're in dialogue with yes. Larry Hama, with sure. John Byrne, with Chris Claremont, with Frank Thierry, yes. with all of these people who wrote the character for extended periods of time. That's right. I do think the other part is like, a, it's, it's very easy to interrogate the things you hate or to mock them, but uh, to sort of interrogate, rethink, recontextualize the things you loved, uh, you know, uh, feels uh, more vital to me. And of course, there's some people for whom, like a thing I'm willing to wrestle with is a thing that is a non-starter for them. They just Absolutely, yeah. That. And that's all right, Which too. Which we'll get to with Sabretooth. With, Sabretooth, with uh, Absolutely. And in fact, like, part of the 
for me, part of the excitement about Sabretooth was feeling like, well, there's a couple paths you can take, but I feel like one path that is less rarely taken, less often taken rather, uh, is one that says he's awful and I'm not going to try to change your, your mind about that. And that's what I found so refreshing about this first issue, because what I love is a story about a bad person where that's allowed. Right, right. It's fiction. We're exploring right. taking this person's perspective into account without valorizing it necessarily. Yes. yes. I think some of the most interesting work is there. I mean, one of the things that most chap my ass about the Game of Thrones TV show, and there are many mm. things, and I'm not going to get into it too deep, but <laughs> the big thing for me apart from the treatment of some of the female characters, which again, mm. we don't have to get into that. But other than that, obvious thing that lots of people have written on, my big, big problem with it was the way that I felt all of the protagonists who were bad people had to be smoothed over yeah. for this adaptation. The Lannisters in particular, all three of them, Tyrion included, are very, very bad people in the right. book. Right. The show, in its effort to give you more recognizable heroes to look at, kind of elided that. I thought her in some places changed it dramatically. Mm. And I think that there's an impulse with characters who are ongoing to do that. I think Sabretooth is a character who has often fallen prey to that impulse. In the yeah. 90s, when we were in that moment of like extreme, Venom's the biggest thing going besides X-Men. Yeah. The idea of let's turn him into like a fun, charming anti-hero was something yeah. they really wanted to do. But the character that Claremont and Hama had established up to that point was so loathsome yes. that it took a lot of heavy lifting to try and do that. And at times, it means that there have been really two versions of this character That's in right. the popular imagination. Yeah. Right down to, for a while, two of them actually existing in right. publication history at the same time, because one needed to be bad and one needed to be good. I think that that duality to the character is part of what makes him interesting as a psychological study, because if you take it as granted that all of these stories did happen to some extent, yeah. how do you patchwork that together? Right going into like a mindscape kind of thing of like what makes this guy tick is a really smart way to do that. So I'm excited to see where this goes. I mean, certainly like, um, uh, I remember like when it was announced, uh, I remember uh, some of the uh, stuff chatter on Twitter, like people writing to me and stuff like that saying like, I hope you don't just make it, uh, he, he better not just be sitting in the dark for 20 pages or something like that. And I was like, I agree with you. That would be awful. <laughs> Did they really think that that would get approved even as like a Marvel comic book? Say, I mean, yes. yeah, like, you know. But, you know, I, mean, I think, uh, like with many things, you know, uh, the way the machine works is not always obvious to the folks who are outside the machine. Right. And so it could, maybe there was some idea like, well, they hired you, so now you just get to say what you want to do. Right. You're a famous novelist, so maybe they didn't edit you, and we're just going to sit yeah, through an you. Ingmar Bergman, like, <laughs> face in shadow for... Which, I mean, you know, there's a part of me that... I'd read it, that. but I don't think that the monthly comic no, direct market is going to no. read that. You know? and, and, yeah, so uh, so the idea of doing it this way... So I guess I should say, because you did talk about like, coming to the X office, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did that happen? Uh, so I am, uh, from the world of uh, fiction writing, I'm uh, buddies with Ben Percy. Mm -hmm. um, we've been at various conferences together, taught at places together, and become friendly. And particularly within that world... Uh, we both began as, I guess, what would be called literary realists um, yeah. and moved into writing uh, genre fiction that has elements of, there's cross-genre, crossing things together, 
literary horror, literary sci-fi, whatever that might mean. Softer is, genre, like in the sense that it's what we call in literary agent parlance, we call it upmarket. Where up we're market, like, yes. you wouldn't know from the, like if you're pitching it to someone, it's not a fantasy novel in that right. way, but it has supernatural or fantastical elements, elements to it. Yes. Which is unfortunate. I mean, personally, certainly like when I started moving this direction and I would do interviews, what I would say is I'm a literary writer who's trying to become a horror writer which made my, uh, did not always make my editor happy. Right, right. no, that's, uh, yeah, I don't mean that you're doing, I don't mean you're doing it in a snobby no, no, way. But, it, but, but there but is, is there is that. a snobbiness to it Absolutely. In, the, in the field, yeah. Yes, and um, so anyway, so Ben and I became close because we might be at a literary conference talking about how much we loved uh, or hated the latest Friday the 13th remake, some scene in it or something like that. You know, we were right. there doing that. And so we became friends. And so then he obviously started working on Wolverine and X-Force. Um, although before that, I mean, I was already reading him when he was doing Nightwing at DC mm-hmm. and all the rest. And then he reached out as he was in the uh, Krakoa era. And he said, uh, would you ever have a pitch for anything? And I said, uh, the character I want to write is Sabretooth. No question. And he said, okay, no one that I know of has, like, I, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that. So I'll send it on to Jordan and Jonathan, see what they say. And then they said, let's have a meeting. Let's have a Zoom talk and talk about it. And then we met and I made essentially my basic pitch. Like, uh, obviously, number one, what happened to Sabretooth down there? Right. Like, he's been gone a long time. But more than that, it was, here's what I would say has happened. And here's what I would say is the way that Sabretooth, who's not normally a character who has grand effects on the on the X world, here's how I could pitch this as a miniseries about how he becomes a greater problem without having to suddenly make him, you know, I remember he was a, a herald of Galactus, he was uh, one of the horsemen, right, of Apocalypse, without going that route. Here's how I could make, almost like how, um, I want to talk about like, how could Sabretooth essentially become a philosophical virus. Mm-hmm. And everything that is Sabretooth makes that make sense. And they were interested in that idea. They said, all right, well, write up a some, you know, write up an outline of what you would do. And I wrote up a very broad one, gave it to them, and then they came back pretty quickly and said, like, uh, let's do it. We want to do it. One of the things Jonathan said it was very helpful was I originally had it, it was going to be one mutant who goes down in the pit. And then he said, how about a few? Because then you have more story possibilities. And you can have conversations that are not just between two people. That's right. And you can have secret allies, secret enemies. Was it one of these five in your pitch? Yes. It was, uh, so the, the, the original person, this of all of them, it was Melter. Huh. I, it was not, which was, I think there was also a way they were like, um, who's that okay. again? Right. It's a, yeah. It's because it's Melter 2. It's, it's Melter like not two. even the main Melter. It's not even the good Melter. Uh, <laughs> and so I think they were also saying, like, uh, you know, maybe if I had picked, even who knows, if I had picked Oya or Necra mm-hmm. or Madison Jefferson, maybe that would have been like, oh, okay. But I think it was definitely the right call to say, like, uh, how about a few more? And none of them should be the big boys. Right. Right. Because no one on the top should have noticed that they're gone. That's right. Is, I assume, the the thing. That's right. And uh, and then, of course, there were going to eventually be other people who came down into the pit, as we know now. But those people were playing pretty big roles. Well, at least mm-hmm. two of them were playing yeah. pretty big roles 
in story. So it was the feeling of like, well, we'll get to them. Right. Well, you're starting earlier in the timeline subjectively. So like Nanny and Toad and Orphan Maker aren't down there yet. They're not there yet. They will be, but they're not down there yet. Right. Uh, And so, and yeah, and the idea was certainly, again, like it it shouldn't be Sabretooth just sitting down there like, hey, I wonder when Nanny, Orphan Maker, and Toad are going to get here. Right. There needs to have been something else going going on. on. And then what, even what's going on in some way will expand upon what happens when Nanny, Orphan Maker, and Toad get there. It's additive as opposed to just sort of sitting around waiting. Right. Well, yeah, because now these are five other characters that now also have a story that was unexplored that is now being explored, right? That's right. It's interesting that Sabretooth was your first pick. I remember when you teased that you were telling a villain story and Mm -hmm. you were excited to tell their Krakoan story for the first time. There were several different names people floated. Sabretooth obviously was a name people floated immediately because what happened to Sabretooth is a big question spinning out of Hoxpox. Yeah. But another one that I saw repeat, and this one I thought there was a, a good shot, was M-Plate. Right. Because he is a Black character yes. connected to Lovecraftian stuff. And people yes. were like, huh, this would work. <laughs> you know, and that's still a character I'd love to see you take a spin with at some point. But I like the idea. I, but I don't know, if, like you say, about uh, uh, the, the, the 22 pages of... Uh, of shadows right like a solo m plate series feels like it would be a bit (laughs) of a stretch right i mean i think at least certainly rightly so like nobody had to know me in the comic world in the marvel comic world so the idea of saying like right out the gate here's this writer who has no history with you and a character who at who's not right who's at best like c-list at best right a Sabretooth book sells itself on some level. And then the question yes. is, how do you make it good? And That's I think right. a lot of Sabretooth stories over the last 40 years have been not so good, you know? So it's a balancing act of this character is too big to fail with, okay, but I'm not. And yes. I am making my entry into big two comics with this story and I want to make it meaningful. Yeah. What is it about Sabretooth that was like the reason you said Sabretooth is the character I want to write? Well, it's also, it's because of the circumstance. Because of the plot and how Because he was imprisoned, yes. Like, even if it was Sabretooth, if they had said, like, you could pitch anything and Sabretooth was not in the pit, I d- I'm quite sure I would never have picked Sabretooth. So what's interesting to you was less the man himself and more the story you could tell. Well, it's both, right? Like, I, so there's this uh, wonderful poet named uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts, uh, who is a... When he was 16, if I'm remembering correctly, when he was 16, he and a friend carjacked a guy and he went to prison. At 16 years old, he was, I think he was sent to prison for maybe he got 10, 15 years. I can't remember exactly, right? And uh, he is now in his 40s, he's a Yale-trained lawyer, accomplished poet, husband and father of two wonderful boys, if I'm remembering right, and uh, works on top of writing up some just amazing poetry, he also, he uses his law degree specifically to work on behalf of essentially a lot of the dudes he was in prison with. Right. And one of the things I remember him saying some time ago that really stayed with me was he said, I love that we have things like the Innocence Project and stuff like that. I love that we get people out who have been wrongly convicted. What I want people to sort of wrestle with is what do we do with the people who did do a bad thing, who aren't saying that they are innocent, but they don't deserve what I got. 
then you take it to its logical conclusion of what about like the very worst? What about the worst people? I mean, there is always a lot of debate about the Manson girls, Mm -hmm. whether the Manson girls ought to die in prison for what they did when they were on a lot of drugs. You know, my position is no, but I understand why the families of the people involved don't want to let them out. I understand why for a lot of people, what happened to Sharon Tate is a real bridge too far. Right. Sabretooth has, sort of like the Manson girls and Sharon Tate, this inciting incident that is one of the first flashbacks we get, which is the rape and murder of Silver Fox. Yes. I get it because this character is difficult for me. I always have trouble with this character when we're supposed to accept him as like, this is the anti-hero guy who we hang out with because I flash back to that story. Absolutely. You know, and I'm like, why are we hanging out with this guy? Like, this doesn't, this doesn't quite work for me. It's interesting because there are characters like Mr. Sinister where I can wave that off or Celine or Apocalypse or these ridiculous characters. With Sabretooth, I think what's tough about him is that he's a very real kind of monster. These are people who exist, who hurt people, particularly who hurt women. Mm -hmm. The question then is, okay, if there are predators out there, if there are people who, because of psychopathic conditions or simply because it pleases them, whatever it is, who hurt other people like this and will not stop. Yes. And you believe in abolishing prison or even in prison reform. I mean, like, without even going all the way to, like, an Angela Davis kind of Mm -hmm. position, even if you're trying to reduce imprisonment or whatever the compromise positions are, like, what do you do with people like that? What do you do with someone who is unrepentant and who does cause harm and is a danger to other people? I think that that is why, while obviously we are supposed to see the pit as a scary or horrible thing, even as early as House of X, I'm supposed to wonder, why do we do that? It's partly because Krakoa as a non-carceral state in terms of how it operates above board (laughs) is asking, okay, we're giving all the supervillains amnesty as long as they promise not to do any more crimes. Like that is, okay, great. That's something that a lot of advocates think we should do in real life. If we do that, what do you do with the person who refuses to stop doing the crimes? Mm -hmm. And also, what do you do with the... I mean, I think... It makes sense to me, illogically, emotionally, that for Hickman, you have to throw Sabretooth away because he's also the only one, like Shaw in particular, um, they'll do terrible things, but they'll at least hide it. Yeah, and you can reason with them. Like they're logical, self-interested, bad people, but they're lawful evil in whatever That's right. And obviously Sabretooth is pure chaotic evil. I can imagine, I don't know this because... We never spoke about it, but I could imagine there's a way that you just say, I'm juggling so much. I can't also juggle what's Sabretooth doing <laughs> <Right>. in this <laughs> place. It's just too much. It's too much. Well, there are a couple of characters who don't fit the amnesty framework and therefore we haven't seen them or they got handled on the page. Like, for example, Fenris, they're Nazis. That's right. So X-Corp gets rid of them by having them betray everybody because they're Nazis. Yes. Similarly, this story, Sabretooth, like he's not going to pal around on the island and not kill people. No. So you have to 
put him aside. Cassandra Nova has been absent up to this point because she's also a chaotic evil force that you yes. can't reason with. And I imagine part of what Steve is doing with Marauders going forward is going to be, well, okay, now we have that. It's here. What do we do with it? Yes. Can you fit her into our framework? Is it impossible? What are the limits of our amnesty program? And yes. similarly, Sabretooth asked that question. There's a great bit in Excalibur 20. Hmm. Betsy and Kanan are talking to Xavier about Malice. And he wants to throw Malice in the pit because mm -hmm. she's also, in his view, like a chaotic evil that you can't control. Yeah. He says, you know, there are no prisons on Krakoa. She'll just be deep in a pit without any like, you know, <laughs> ability to move. And Conan says, that sounds exactly like a prison. Yes. Which is a great line and is underlined, I think, in this first issue with the data page that you have about the California firefighters, for example, yes. about the ways that prison labor is exploited, about the ways that American culture in particular tends to look away from the incarcerated as, I mean, it's very Le Guin, right? It's like the ones who walk away from Amalas. Yeah. It's like, yes. there have to be people incarcerated for the betterment of our society. And right. the question is like, is that true? Is it true? Is it true only for people like Sabretooth? Or is it not true at all? Right. What is the answer? Yeah, all of these questions are the questions of the Sabretooth series uh, on top of the ways that other folks are also wrestling with them, right? But it, one of the things that I also find so I know uh, in Ben's X-Force, Beast has become, uh, everyone Everyone hates Beast. He's reached the apotheosis of the arc he's been on for quite some time that has taken yes. him down an authoritarian kind of path, yeah. Yes, but one of the things that I do find baffling sometimes about the online conversation about him, like I, I, there's a part of me that thinks, um, let's say specifically in an American context, mm -hmm. The only way you could think that Beast has gone above and beyond the pale, so to speak, in running a nation is if you are willfully obtuse or genuinely ignorant of how nations run, right? Like one of the things I've really admired about what Ben has done with uh, Beast is that he hasn't had that moment where he plays cuddly with this or that person, you know, like, I mean, certainly to my mind, the person I'm thinking of is the founder of the CIA, James Jesus Angleton. Mm -hmm. If they think Beast is bad, I would just say read about James Jesus Angleton. If you think Hank is over the top or the fact that the Quiet Council is willing to allow Hank his excesses is unrealistic, then look up the history of the CIA, of yes. MI6, of the Mossad, yes. the KGB. I mean, all of these security apparatuses are heinous. And that's why it's black ops, because it's yes. stuff that the general public isn't supposed to know about. It's stuff that's seen as necessary for the betterment or for the security. I mean, that's why it's called national security, which yeah. is, you know, Spencer Ackerman will tell you a ridiculous thing to call it. But mm -hmm. it is what we call it because the idea is, OK, we need this. It needs to happen, much like Sabretooth needs to be in the pit. Yes. With Beast and people being like, how hasn't Beast had his comeuppance yet? I've said this on the show before. Like, Henry Kissinger is having dinner yes, right now. Yes, he is. And, uh, I mean, what do you call it? Rudy Giuliani was on The Masked Singer. He sure was. Just dancing away, sweating under his mask until yeah, he revealed. just kibitzing with Jenny McCarthy. Yes. And so, I, the the you know, it's it can be 
difficult sometimes, I think, for like popular entertainment is a myth-making machine. It has to be narratively satisfying. So yes. the idea that Beast gets away with everything forever because that's realistic is presumably not how the story is going to I'm go. Guessing. But I, yes. I think the fact that it has gone on this long and that what we've seen is Emma, for example, who is sort of a neoliberal, hyper-capitalist, minority capitalist, kind yeah. of has, has, she and Monet, I think, have a similar, and Warren all have uh -huh. kind of that approach to the question of like, how do you advance mutant rights is like, well, we take over the market, which is an right. approach, certainly. Yeah. And she's saying, all right, like she, I was struck when she explicitly referred to the Terra Verde thing as colonialism. Yeah. Because you don't see that very often in a comic where you just like no, say you it, you know, yes. on the page. But Emma's perspective is that's colonialism. It's really fucked up. You're going to shut that down. However, I'm not taking you off. Right, right. Like I'm not taking you out. And then you have Sage, who is the person working with him, who is more morally together mm -hmm. than he is, but she doesn't want to be in charge. That's right. I'm hoping that that will change. That's my vision of the future of that story. Yeah. But I'm just very invested in that character. I think she's fascinating. Yeah. In any case, it makes sense to see these people looking the other way. Cecilia Reyes looking the other way a little bit because she is experiencing some of the most interesting medical miracles of... Yes. You know, like she is seeing how much they're helping people. So is she paying that much attention to what Beast's doing? No, because you look right. the other way sometimes if it's going to help. Like the idea is the greater good, right? And we're right. seeing, because we're focused in on Beast and seeing all the truly heinous things he does, we can't look away from it the way that we do look away from what every national security apparatus is yes. doing in the name of its citizenry every day. Yes. And it's, you know, I mean, yeah. So to my mind, uh, the Sabretooth story falls somewhere under that rubric where the point is not to say let's revel in the worst of him which i feel like is sometimes sometimes it's just excessive that, right? yeah the point is look how bad he can be and let's secretly just enjoy being bad or openly enjoy being bad and then the and the other and then the flip just, side of like let's excuse everything bad that he ever right. did or whatever, and uh, and know? fix him you know uh, with this or that sort of mechanism and feeling like there was a third path which uh, hopefully it will be a satisfying path, which is that he is terrible. And yet he's also been put into a situation that is terrible. And how do we wrestle with the idea of like, uh, you know, certainly I'm, there are many, many people who would say for the worst of the worst, cut their heads off, toss them in a pit, forget them. But I don't feel that way. And also, quite frankly, that's not actually possible. Right. Right. Uh, because, of course, uh, who's the worst? Can we all agree on who the worst of the worst? Well, that's the question. Again, Henry Kissinger is yes. having dinner right now. Like that's yes. it. And what makes him worse than foreign war criminals who we have executed as the worst of the worst? Yes. Is a matter of perspective. Yes. Right. That's right. Perspective, but also like uh, and proximity to power. Mm -hmm. Right. Like uh, Apocalypse, Emma, uh, Exodus. Sinister, part of the reason they get absolved is because they're so powerful and so useful. They have something to provide. Sabretooth yes. is a low status character. That's right. He's always working for somebody or just acting out of impulse. He's never, yes. he doesn't have a bigger plan. That's right. You know, he doesn't think really ahead of his next 
yes. kill or whatever. So that is usually the way he's not done. a character who has anything to offer yes. Krakoa as a society necessarily. And so the obvious choice, I mean, my friend Jordan, who's going to do the Necra episode in June, okay. and they were like, you know, whatever Necra did to be put down there was real fucked up. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, I bet she's the one who deserves it is the thing. But then the question is, does, well, and the other one is, I bet like Mr. What's his name? The new guy. Yeah. He's probably real fucking scary if I because uh-huh. he's the Victor Laval original yeah. character. So I'm like, mm, I'm I'm worried about I'm worried sure. about that one. I'm keeping my eye on him. I said that Gus Fring looking guy who yeah. <laughs> I was like, I bet he's real scary with his little suit. You know, like I was like, it's it's that vibe. And I uh, I oof, that's I just know something terrible is about to happen. The question then is like, what makes him? or Necro, assuming that I'm right about that at all. Yeah. I mean, not to, again, go to a place of George R. R. Martin, but, like, Theon Greyjoy and Cersei Lannister are perhaps the worst POV characters we get in those books, but then the things that happen to them are so outsized and inappropriate that you start to wonder, like, okay, this person deserves to be punished, but not this. Like, yeah. this, they didn't deserve this. And so the question yeah. is, well, then what do they deserve? Like, what right. is crime and punishment? What do we do? I don't know. I'm just very excited about this. I think it's the kind of book that we get every once in a while in superhero comics and they become lingering conversation pieces for years and years. I really, I mean, I was feeling like, um, like regardless even of where, like potentially, you know, the next four issues of this series, maybe they're just total garbage, right? But <laughs> it, even if that's the case, and I really, I don't believe it's the case, but even if that's the case, feeling like that first issue injecting this conversation about this character in particular. It's already done a lot of the work. Yeah, it feels like it's already set up so many things that could be conversations, ideas, all the rest. And, you know, I will say, like, you're right. I think part of the reason Sabretooth, to my mind, part of the reason Sabretooth never has been able to be like an, if not an A-lister, like a B-plus lister, since I feel like his power set... He's definitely like an A-list X-Men character, but he's right. not like, a, in terms of the biggest brands in superheroes, he's always right. held back just a little bit. Yes. Versus a Venom, who I think was the other villain in this moment that they decided to push into the hero space back in the 90s. That's right. I do wonder if like, if it wasn't for that choice to make him rape and murder Silver Fox and the idea that he finds Wolverine every year. Every year to rapes do and it again. Whoever yeah. he's with. I, like there's a part, it was almost like, I feel like he could have been saved. I agree. If it wasn't for that. But you can't erase that. The reason Venom works is because there isn't really any of that. Like Eddie Brock right. isn't that bad a guy. So you That's can- right bring him out of that. I mean, lots of X-Men characters. You even go to, like, Emma Frost. The most truly evil thing Emma Frost ever did was blow up that girl's pony. And, like, <laughs> that wasn't even in a real X-Men title. That's right. Like, that was it, you know. And then the other thing is, like, she helped Mastermind manipulate Jean, which is horrible. Right. And that's why Emma and Jean dealing with their shit is a thing, even if they don't talk about that explicit thing, it's something you do have to do in the story. Sabretooth, the problem is, like, Silver Fox is dead. Yep. And even when she came back, kind of, we're about to get into it, guys. We'll, we'll get into it in the character file. In the 90s, it was sort of like, we're not dealing with any, like it doesn't, it just made her a bad guy, which is, yes. I guess, a novel solution to that problem, <laughs> but is not really a solution to that problem. Well, because it doesn't change what he did. Right. Even if she was evil or whatever, like yeah. it doesn't change what he did and why he did it. And why he did it. 
and how little she mattered in what he did. Yes. Like that layer on top of it as well. Like, uh, and there is like a racial element there also. Yes. It's really unavoidable. But I tell you, the funny thing is like, there's a part of me that wishes, I almost wish it had been more explicitly that. He calls her a squaw. I mean, like it's pretty, it's there, but it's not quite as, it could have been more about that than it. I mean, it could have been more about Silver Fox generally. It's one yes. of Claremont's frigiest stories. Yes. He doesn't have that many. Lourdes Chantel and Silver Fox are the two really bad ones because Marco yes. doesn't. That's Hama who kills off Marco. Uh, I see. Okay. I was going to say. Claremont never would have killed off Marco. You should have Claremont yes. written that character for the next 50 years. Yes. But like Silver Fox, it's inconvenient for Wolverine to have a great love because if you're writing Wolverine, you want him to be like Batman or James Bond, where. He can be with whatever woman the plot demands, right? Yeah. It's hard then, to tie them down. I will admit, I I wanted to see Batman and Catwoman stay married. So did I. So, but this is what, 30 years ago, 40 years ago when that happened. So it's easy to look back and be like, oh, you could have just right. grown Wolverine up a little bit for a while, right? Like, uh, But like they wouldn't even let Spider-Man stay married. No, like it doesn't, right. it just doesn't happen. So anyway, I think now is a good time for us to... Pause for the Cerebro Character File on Sabretooth. Guys, this is going to be a really rough one because Sabretooth's publication history is all retcons from start to finish. It doesn't really make any sense. I'm going to have to talk about Romulus, which I've avoided doing for this entire podcast so far. And uh, I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best. We're going to get you through it. We're going to take you from his first appearance in Iron Fist randomly all the way up to Sabretooth number one by Victor Laval and Leonard Kirk. Then we will come back for more with Victor. You'll know we're calling him Sabretooth and not Victor in this episode. I usually use first names, but it would be a little confusing in (laughs) this one. We'll be back for more with Victor Laval. We'll talk about his favorite Sabretooth stories, my favorite Sabretooth stories. Not super a lot of them, but you know what? There are little (laughs) moments and we'll get there. Then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Hey, everybody. We're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this Mobile Squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War and the Real-Time Arena. Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I, for one, can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. All right, here's the situation, guys. Not since Cable has tracking one of these characters in publication order been this fucking annoying. Sabretooth's history is a parade of retcon after retcon after retcon, and most of it is in Wolverine solo material that I simply don't know as well as I know regular X-Men stuff. 
So I have been sifting through Marvel Unlimited. I have been cross-referencing with UncannyXMen.net, the Marvel Wiki, every other profile on Sabretooth I can find via Google search. I have been all up in Travis Starnes' complete Marvel reading order. I'm going to try my best here. I really am. But I am sure there are mistakes in this character file. And if so, I beg forgiveness. This episode is already like six days late and I am choosing to release myself from working on it any further. This is, in fact, the least fun I have ever had doing research for this podcast. Wild. Anyway... Victor Creed, better known as Sabretooth, carved an unlikely path to becoming one of the most prominent villains in the X-Men franchise. Created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, he was initially a recurring foe of Danny Rand and Luke Cage, the heroes Iron Fist and Power Man, and their allies Colleen Wing and Misty Knight. Inspired by Byrne's proposed design for an unmasked Wolverine, Sabretooth eventually moved to the X-Men titles in the 1986 event Mutant Massacre, where he was part of Mr. Sinister's Marauders and was revealed as Wolverine's longtime arch-nemesis. In the 90s, with villains turned anti-heroes all the rage at Marvel, Sabretooth became a major player, sometimes on the side of the heroes. But no matter how many writers have tried to redeem him, Victor Creed always seems to return to form as an unrepentant serial killer and sexual predator. Sabretooth debuts in 1977's Iron Fist 14 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, in which he's a mercenary working for art thieves. He's a formidable opponent, but Iron Fist is able to defeat him in the end. The character was then set to appear in Claremont's Ms. Marvel, but much like Rogue's intended first appearance, see the Rogue episode, this was disrupted when the book was abruptly cancelled. This story, where Carol Danvers battles Sabretooth, would be published years later in the early 90s. In it, Sabretooth is hired by Canada's nefarious Department H to capture Wolverine, who had quit working for them back in Giant Size X-Men. He's apprehended by Ms. Marvel. In actual publication chronology, Sabretooth returns in 1980 for another story with Iron Fist, this time in Power Man and Iron Fist by Joe Duffy and Kerry Gamble. Again hired as muscle for art thieves, this time alongside fellow mercenary the Constrictor, Sabretooth comes into conflict with Colleen Wing and Misty Knight, who call in Power Man and Iron Fist for backup. Two years later, in the same title, Sabretooth and Constrictor are again working as muscle for hire. Sabretooth, however, is also committing a string of serial killings on the side. The heroes fail to connect Sabretooth with the murders, but they do foil his latest plan. Later that year, he seeks revenge by waiting outside Misty Knight's apartment, intent on killing her. When Power Man's girlfriend, model Harmony Young, who resembles Misty, arrives at the apartment instead, Sabretooth viciously disfigures her face with his claws. Power Man resists the urge to kill Sabretooth to avenge Harmony, and Harmony's face is luckily able to be repaired by a plastic surgeon. In 1986, writer Peter David pits Sabretooth against Spider-Man and the Black Cat in the pages of Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man. Claremont pulls him into the X-Men titles the following month for Mutant Massacre. Sabretooth and his compatriots in the Marauders exterminate most of the Morlocks beneath Manhattan, and Sabretooth ends up hunting alone for any survivors left behind. He discovers the Morlock healer, and is about to kill him when he's attacked by Wolverine. Wolverine manages to bring down the ceiling and bury Sabretooth, rescuing Healer and bringing him back to the Xavier Mansion to recover. Sabretooth claws his way out of the rubble and tracks them back to Xavier's, where he ends up in a prolonged game of lethal cat and mouse with the X-Men's houseguest, telepath Betsy Braddock. Though she's no match for him physically, Betsy is able to keep Sabretooth occupied long enough to enter his mind telepathically, gathering information about the Marauders and their employer, Mr. Sinister. Sabretooth flees in order to avoid being captured, and Betsy is invited to join the X-Men as Psylocke in recognition of her bravery. 
In a backup story in classic X-Men 10, a flashback shows us that back when Wolverine was first settling in with the X-Men in New York, Sabretooth stalked him across the city, at one point murdering a girl for flirting with him. Sabretooth manages to slit Wolverine's throat and leave him for dead, but Wolverine's healing factor saves his life. Back in the present, Sabretooth rejoins the Marauders, now led by the possessing entity Malice, but clearly chafes under Mr. Sinister's direction. The extent of Sabretooth's own healing factor becomes evident when Wolverine stabs him in the heart during a confrontation, and he is able to survive. Two years later, the Marauders return for the franchise-wide event Inferno, in which Psylocke yet again defeats Sabretooth with her superior mind. Wolverine stabs Sabretooth in the heart again, and this time, it seems like he's dead for real. He's not, obviously. The New Mutants dig him out of the rubble of the destroyed Xavier Mansion after the event concludes, and their leader, Danny Moonstar, empowered with Death Sight as a Valkyrie of Asgard, don't worry about it right now, is confused when he apparently dies of exhaustion while attacking them. She didn't see the death coming. Anyway, he gets better. The tenth issue of the Wolverine solo series by Chris Claremont and John Buscema explains the longtime enmity between Wolverine and Sabretooth. Long ago, Logan was living in the Yukon as a laborer with a woman named Silver Fox, a member of the Blackfoot First Nation. Sabretooth routinely taunted Logan, trying to pick a fight, and eventually, on Logan's birthday, he went to Logan's home where Silver Fox was alone and raped and murdered her. When Logan confronted Sabretooth in town, Sabretooth brutally beat him and left him for dead. In the present, we learn that every year on his birthday, Logan is again attacked by Sabretooth. This time, though, Sabretooth kills some other criminals who are targeting Logan, leaving a note that only he is allowed to kill Wolverine. David Michelini and Todd McFarlane then bring Sabretooth into an amazing Spider-Man arc where he's hired by the Red Skull to assassinate the Prime Minister of Simcaria, sending the nation into chaos. In a battle with Captain America and Silver Sable, he apparently dies when a wall collapses on him. Are you sensing a theme? He's back the following year for an arc of Louise Simonson's X-Factor, where he's again hunting down any survivors of the Morlocks in the tunnels beneath Manhattan. Simonson then brings him into one of her final arcs on New Mutants, where the former Morlock Caliban, now an empowered servant of the immortal mutant apocalypse, begins hunting Sabretooth in the tunnels, apparently killing him by snapping his spine. Sabretooth, of course, gets better. He returns the following year in the Wolverine solo series, now written by Larry Hama, where he attacks Wolverine in the tunnels. He proclaims to Logan's horror that he is Logan's father. Claremont and Burns' original intention for the character, but S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are able to use a DNA sample to prove to Wolverine this is not actually the case. It turns out Sabretooth and Wolverine both have lots of fake memories that were implanted in them by the Weapon X program at Department H, so it's all a crapshoot, basically. After teaming up with a bunch of other villains to fight She-Hulk in Sensational She-Hulk 30, Sabretooth pops up in Marvel Comics Presents 98, where he's prevented from murdering a woman by Jack Russell, the werewolf by night. The Wolverine solo continues to flesh out Sabretooth's backstory with Logan, establishing that in the 60s they were part of a joint black ops program between the CIA and Department H called Team X, which included Sabretooth, Wolverine, Maverick, and John Wraith. All the Team X agents had their brain and memories heavily messed with by their handlers. This is when Chris Claremont leaves the X-Men franchise after 16 years, and in the new adjectiveless X-Men title, co-writers John Byrne and Jim Lee bring back Sabretooth in a big way. He's now a suave gangster type with a sidekick, a telepathic woman named Birdie who's able to calm his bloodlust with her powers. These issues are the first to identify Sabretooth by his alleged real name, Victor Creed. Further flashbacks to Team X show that Victor was a rogue element on the team back in the day, at one point outraging Logan by murdering their contact Dr. Janice Hollenbeck during a conflict over the device called the Carbonadium Synthesizer. Please see the Omega Red episode as I simply refuse to talk about the Carbonadium Synthesizer in any detail ever again. 
In the present, Victor and Bertie are hired by the hands leader Matsuo Suriyaba and work along Matsuo's allies, the Fenris twins, to recover the carbonadium synthesizer and use it to reactivate Omega Red, who's been in suspended animation. Victor is unable to remember Omega Red because all the Team X guys, again, have had their memories all fucked up. He does recognize the X-Men's recent recruit, Gambit, with whom he implies he has a dark and secret history. Sabretooth teams up with Psylocke, who's pretending to be under Matsuo's mind control, and the two capture Wolverine and Maverick. Secretly, Psylocke's in control of herself, and she overpowers Victor telepathically, again, so that they can get the drop on Matsuo and Fenris. Back in the Wolverine solo, a series of Weapon X robots start hunting down rogue former agents after Wolverine accidentally turns them on. John Wraith begins gathering the old Team X crew together, including Silver Fox? Yes, Silver Fox. She's apparently alive, decades after both Wolverine and Sabretooth remember Sabretooth murdering her. And apparently she was part of Team X with them back in the 60s. Now she works for Hydra. This will never, ever make sense. I think they eventually retcon this Silver Fox into an imposter. We will get to this someday in a Silver Fox episode. God help me. Anyway... Sabretooth ends up killing her again, so don't worry about it. Around this time, Sabretooth appears in the Marvel UK miniseries Battle Tide, where he's forced to fight in a gladiatorial arena, but you truly do not need to worry about that. Another story you don't need to worry about, but should read, because I love this book, is in Darkhold, pages from the Book of Sins, where he's summoned by Modred the Mystic to aid the Darkhold Redeemers in battling the Ungari Demons. This arc is a funny little parody of the extreme 90s tone of much of Marvel Comics at the time, and using Sabretooth in it is very funny. It's a treat. Sabretooth does more murders, he fights Wolverine a bunch, we get more Team X flashbacks you don't really need to worry about, he fights Iron Fist and Misty Knight and Colleen Wing again, and then Larry Hama writes a Sabretooth miniseries. We learn that as a child, young Victor was locked in the cellar by his father, kept chained up like a dog. His parents were religious fanatics who believed his mutation was a sign of the devil. His father would pull out his mutant canine teeth with pliers again and again, but they always grew back. Eventually, Victor's father tried to kill him with an axe, but his mother jumped in the way of the blow and was killed instead. In the present, Bertie longs to escape from Victor, who is holding her against her will due to his addiction to her sedative power. She lets in mercenaries employed by a mysterious threat called the Tribune, who has an explosive implanted in Victor to force him into service, instructing him to kill the shape-shifting mutant terrorist Mystique. Victor and Bertie track Mystique down in Paris, where Victor is surprised to recognize her scent, as he doesn't believe he's ever met Mystique before. It turns out that decades earlier, he'd had an affair with a German spy named Lini Sauber, but Lini had actually been killed and replaced by Mystique. Mystique reveals that as Lini, she gave birth to Victor's son, whom she named Graydon Creed. Bertie is able to help Victor track down the Tribune's headquarters, and they manage to get the explosive device out of Victor's body in the nick of time. The Tribune turns out to be Graydon, who was rejected by Mystique because he was born human rather than mutant. He grew up despising mutants and organized this whole conspiracy just to get his parents to kill each other. Victor moves to kill him, but Birdie encourages mercy. For her trouble, Graydon murders Birdie, leaving Sabretooth without her soothing power and once more at the mercy of his own bloodlust. Actually respecting that Graydon was willing to kill, as it makes him truly Victor's son, Victor allows him to live. Without Birdie to keep him under control, Victor ends up attacking Charles Xavier, longing for another kind of telepathic treatment. The X-Men capture him and lock him up in the brig beneath the Xavier mansion. Underwriters Fabian Nicieza and Scott Lobdell in this period, Charles and Jean Grey attempt to rehabilitate Victor, while refusing to use their powers in the way that Birdie did. Most of the X-Men think the whole idea is pretty stupid. They turn out to be right when Hank McCoy accidentally shuts off the power at the mansion, freeing Victor, who immediately attempts to kill Jubilee. With help from Bishop, she's able to overpower him with a taser, and he's put back in his cell. 
When Caliban kidnaps Jubilee and demands the X-Men hand over Sabretooth in exchange, Charles uses his power to calm Victor as Birdie once did, and sends him down into the Morlock tunnels with Shadowcat to negotiate. It doesn't go well, but Caliban ends up backing down. Around this time, we learn about the teased history between Victor and Gambit. Back when Gambit was a teenager, he and Victor were both trying to steal the same jewel. Victor ended up capturing Gambit's love interest Genevieve and his adoptive brother Henri, and forced Gambit to choose who lived and who died. Gambit chose his brother, and Genevieve was killed in a fall. Then comes the 1994 franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant, where Victor ends up helping the X-Men fight the Phalanx. He seems to maybe be actually rehabilitated somewhat, and ends up aiding Emma Frost and Banshee in rescuing the mutant teenagers who will become Generation X. Once back at the mansion and back in his cell, Victor forces his way through the pain field holding him inside it. Logan threatens to kill him, and Victor taunts him into doing it, leading Logan to impale Victor's brain with his claw. The Age of Apocalypse reality warp then briefly creates an alternate timeline where Victor is a heroic member of the X-Men, the surrogate father of Clarice Ferguson, the teenage heroine Blink, who had been killed during Phalanx Covenant in the real reality. When the warp ends, it turns out Victor has survived the brain injury, but it has lobotomized him. He now appears to be harmless and childlike, and the X-Men decide to let him wander the grounds of the mansion doing whatever. Logan, Gambit, and Caliban all declare this an extremely stupid idea, but X-Force member Boom Boom is drawn to him, feeling compassion for his condition. Around this time, Xavier mentions that Victor's first murder happened allegedly when he was nine years old and killed his pediatrician. He then cut a bloody swath across Canada, murdering at least three police officers by the age of 13. As Victor's brain heals, his original personality begins to return, and though he continues to act harmless, his deception is revealed by Jean Grey's telepathy. Charles realizes this whole stupid rehab thing didn't work at all, so he decides to hand Victor over to government official Valerie Cooper. Desperate, Victor tricks Boom Boom into helping him escape. He's intercepted by Psylocke, who plans to yet again overpower him telepathically, but it turns out the lobotomy has made him temporarily immune. He brutally overpowers Betsy, nearly killing her, and escapes into the night. Eventually, he's recaptured by the X-Men and indeed handed over to Val Cooper, who wants him executed. In the pages of X-Factor, now written by Howard Mackey, the government instead decides to weaponize him, using an inhibitor collar to force him to work for them. Over Val's objections, Victor is then assigned to her X-Factor team. Nobody on X-Factor likes working with Victor, obviously. Once Mystique is also drafted in, it sort of becomes a Sabretooth and Mystique book, with all the other characters going, why are Sabretooth and Mystique here? Victor, similarly, does not like being a prisoner forced to do hero stuff. Victor surprises X-Factor, however, by keeping the secret of their teammate Shard, whom they don't want the government to know about. She's a hologram from the future. Don't worry about it right now. Eventually, he's assigned to protect presidential candidate Graydon Creed when Mystique, who has gone rogue, attempts to assassinate their son before he can become an anti-mutant president. Victor and company apprehend Mystique, but Graydon is still killed by an unknown sniper. A retcon, years later, will reveal that Mystique did this via time travel. In a Sabretooth and Mystique miniseries, it turns out Sabretooth worked with Mystique another time without knowing he was working with Mystique, back when she was in the male identity of Mossad operative Amakai Benvenisti. They rescued Mystique's partner Destiny from a rough situation and ended up fighting Hydra. In a Marvel fanfare story by Jamie Campos, Victor's old mercenary partner, the Constrictor, is on a killing spree, so the government tasks Victor with apprehending him. He ends up working in an uneasy partnership with his old enemy's Power Man and Iron Fist, who are pissed that he has government immunity. Sabretooth continues to serve with X-Factor with apparent loyalty, even helping them fake their deaths to hide from the government. But eventually it turns out the entire time he's been working against them as a mole for corrupt government officials, and he nearly kills the whole team on his way out. Val Cooper is able to secure life-saving emergency medical care, but now Victor is on the loose. 
He's ordered to kidnap a young mutant named Trevor Chase, but decides to kill him instead, as Mystique seems to care about him. It turns out Trevor is Destiny's grandson. When his government handlers insist Victor bring in Trevor alive, he kills Trevor's parents instead in a fit of pique. He continues to serve in this hound program for a while before managing to escape after a battle with Omega Rad. Now back to his mercenary ways, Victor returns to Madripoort, an arc of the Wolverine solo written by his co-creator, Chris Claremont. Here we learn that Sabretooth has managed to acquire an adamantium skeleton of his own, making him a true match for Wolverine. In fact, his superior, as at this time Logan has had his adamantium ripped out. Logan's about to marry the Hydra leader Viper in order to secure the safety of the citizens of Madripoor, and Victor attacks the wedding because he refused to let Logan be happy with any woman. With help from Shadowcat, Logan's able to defeat him. Eventually, the three of them end up teaming up unexpectedly to battle Hydra. Victor doesn't want to see fascists take over Madripoor because Madripoor is fun. There's more anti-hero stuff you don't have to worry about, and then toward the end of the 90s, Victor and Logan are both kidnapped by Apocalypse. Apocalypse forces them to compete to become the new horseman of death, and when Logan wins, Apocalypse tears the adamantium from Victor's body in order to re-implant it in Logan. After a brief team-up with Gambit in the Gambit solo, Victor's apparently working for Mr. Sinister by the time of Chris Claremont's revolution return to Uncanny X-Men in 2000. He and Sinister are both apparently murdered by Domina, warrior of the Neo. Do not worry about it. He turns up alive again in time for the Dream's End event in which Mystique recruits him to be part of her latest iteration of the Brotherhood. They attack Muir Island, where Mystique mortally wounds Moira McTaggart. Returning to the Wolverine solo, now written by Frank Thierry, Victor is approached by the director, the man leading a resurrected Weapon X project. He's forced to join the project with new inhibitor technology similar to the collar he wore in X-Factor. Frank Thierry's Weapon X is a book I honestly don't want to talk about too much. It is a grisly, unpleasant book where Victor is about as repulsive and violent and racist as you can imagine. He recruits a bunch of other characters into the program, forcing them to comply. When one recruit, Deadpool, refuses to follow orders and murder his ex-girlfriend, Copycat, Victor kills her himself instead. It turns out Victor's been serial killing on the side while working for the project, and even keeps a teenage girl alive in his closet so he can torture and kill her slowly. Weapon X insists he stop these extracurriculars, and Sabretooth agrees he'll focus his aggression on their mutant targets. Secretly, though, he starts undermining the project from within, eventually escaping via a teleportation device. In a 2002 Sabretooth miniseries by Dan Jolly and Greg Scott, Victor falls in love with this woman named Bonnie, but has to kill her before she's activated and becomes a biological weapon that will end the world. Weird miniseries. Victor then refocuses on taking down the Weapon X project for its arrogance in attempting to control him. He starts murdering their potential recruits and viciously disfigures Weapon X operative Aurora when she and Wildchild are dispatched to apprehend him. Eventually recaptured, he's forced to start doing Weapon X missions again through the intervention of Mesmero. He begins capturing non-useful mutants to send them to the Weapon X death camp, Neverland. Discovering that Mr. Sinister is working for Weapon X under a new identity, Victor conspires with him and manages to break free once more. He's eventually apparently killed by Weapon X operative Marrow. The following year, he turns up alive, of course, in Greg Rucka's new run on the Wolverine solo, where he's working for the CIA doing Black Ops. He has an unfriendly team-up with Wolverine that you do not really need to worry about. Meanwhile, back in Frank Thierry's Weapon X, this book truly just keeps going and going. Victor is contacted by an old man who claims to have survived a Nazi concentration camp. He further claims Mr. Sinister had experimented on him there during the Holocaust, and hires Victor to bring Sinister to him. Victor succeeds, but it turns out that the old man is secretly John Sublime. Yes, from Morrison's new X-Men. And the whole story was made up. Sublime just wanted to get Sinister into his custody so they could work together. This is where all the Mr. Sinister was a Nazi retcon stuff comes from, by the way, is this one fucking Weapon X book. It's over now, thank God.
Big Dwy. Huge. More stuff you don't need to worry about here, including another Sabretooth miniseries where he decides to fight the Wendigo, and then comes the Decimation, where all but about 200 mutants worldwide are depowered. A still-empowered Sabretooth returns in Mike Carey's new run on X-Men, pursued by the post-human cyborgs called the Children of the Vault. Desperate, Victor approaches the X-Men for Sanctuary and ends up tapped by Rogue for her emergency strike team. This is where Romulus comes into the picture. Who is Romulus? He's an ancient, apparently immortal, feral mutant who is retconned in from the Wolverine Origins stuff, and it turns out apparently everything Sabretooth ever did that was interesting, including the rape and murder of Silver Fox, was under Romulus's orders in order to torment Wolverine. Do not worry about this, because it's terrible. Flashbacks show us that long ago Victor and Logan first met in Tokyo, where Victor was serial-killing sex workers. The Hand hired Logan to eliminate him. And while Victor was nearly killed, Romulus saved his life and impressed him into service. Romulus is the only man Victor truly fears. Mike Carey is not to blame for Romulus, just to be clear. This is happening at the same time. Back in the present, Victor serves with Rogue's team of X-Men, but winds up in prison because he's up to his usual saber-tooth nonsense. He escapes during an attack on Cable's island base, Providence, but Cable manages to pitch him miles deep into the ocean to, yet again, his apparent death, I guess. Two years later, in X-Men Origins Sabretooth, a one-shot by Kieran Gillen, we revisit Victor's childhood, and it's established that he murdered his younger brother as a kid. Over in the Wolverine solo, now written by Jeff Loeb, Logan finds an apparently completely feral Victor in a Weapon X facility, and shenanigans ensue. Eventually, they have a final confrontation at the cabin in the Yukon where Victor murdered Silver Fox, and Logan beheads Victor with the magical Muramasa blade, which disables healing factors. In the Jason Aaron storyline, Wolverine Goes to Hell, in which Wolverine Goes to Hell, Sabretooth is in Hell. But it turns out the dead Sabretooth was actually a clone, and Victor comes back because of... Romulus. I almost stopped the character file here and just finished it with the AOL dial-up noise because they have truly had it with this one. I decided to spare you and your ears, but please understand that I am losing it here. Wolverine teams up with Romulus's twin sister, Remus. Why not? And they kill all the other Sabretooth clones. The real Victor escapes, but Romulus is imprisoned at the raft. This stuff is by Jeff Loeb, by the way. I think I'm not going to double check, so just go with it. Back in Jason Aaron's Wolverine, Victor assassinates the head of the Yakuza and joins forces with Mystique, who has been resurrected crazy by the hand after Logan killed her in an earlier story. Victor and Mystique shack up and convince the entire Japanese underworld to name them as leaders of all organized crime in Japan. Which, sure. The first X-Men miniseries happens here, and I refuse to cover it. Flashbacks in Brian Michael Bendis' New Avengers, meanwhile, show us that back in the 50s, Nick Fury employed Victor as part of a squad tracking the Red Skull. Victor ended up decapitating the skull before Fury could question him, which pissed Fury off. I don't remember how this storyline resolves, because this is not an Avengers podcast. It turns out Sabretooth hunted Nazis for a while. His life is a life of contrast. Anyway, back in the present, Victor turns up in Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men, where he takes a job from the child black king of the Hellfire Club, Cade Kilgore. He's tasked with assassinating Hank McCoy on S.W.O.R.D.'s orbital space station, and while he fails, Kilgore manages to save his life. He then spends time training Kilgore in combat. 
He's still the leader of all the crime syndicates in Japan, by the way. Anyway, then he pivots into Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force, where he's working with Mystique and Wolverine's son, Dakin, as part of a new brotherhood. They kidnap Evan Sabiner, the young clone of Apocalypse, don't worry about it right now, and try to convince him that the X-Men's ways are foolish or whatever. Victor doesn't actually care about any of this and is actually trying to manipulate Dakin into attacking his father. Dakin was raised by Romulus, by the way. I know. The character file for the Dakin episode this summer is going to hurt, but not quite this much, I hope. Anyway, anyway... Anyway, Victor succeeds in getting Logan and Dokken to fight and forces Logan into the position of killing his own son, leaving Logan devastated. Victor's delighted by this and escapes with glee. In the Bendis era of X-Men, Victor and Mystique team up with Lady Mastermind to rob banks in order to purchase Madripoor from Viper, who is again in charge over there. Madripoor changes hands a lot. Anyway, Mystique invites Magneto to Madripoor to see her plans for mutant sanctuary there, but her abuse of mutants to sell mutant growth hormone for profit enrages Magneto, who destroys everything. There's more solo Wolverine stuff here, but I am getting exhausted, and truly, none of this matters. All you need to know is that Sabretooth's criminal empire in Japan eventually comes crumbling down. Then Wolverine dies in the Death of Wolverine event. After that is the 2014 company-wide event, Axis, in which the Red Skull steals Professor Xavier's brain and becomes Red Onslaught. Do not worry about this. What matters is that Doctor Doom and the Scarlet Witch cast an inversion spell, which is intended to reverse the Red Skull's moral compass and make him a good person so he can be more easily defeated. They overshoot, and it ends up affecting everyone in the area, heroes and villains alike, including Victor, who becomes a good guy. When the situation is fixed at the end of the event, Victor winds up behind a shield Iron Man had set up, and isn't returned to normal like the other villains. Devastated to at last understand the scope of his own crimes, Victor turns himself in to the authorities. He then ends up on the Avengers Unity Squad. No, seriously. This is not an Uncanny Avengers podcast, and, like, you can go read that book if you want. Anyway... Heroic Sabretooth does heroic stuff in a bunch of books, including Charles Soule's Wolverines and Greg Pak's relaunch of Weapon X, in which he inspires the likes of Omega Red and Lady Deathstrike to also try being heroes. He dates Monet Sanquois. It's crazy. This whole period is crazy. Like, I'm not saying the stories are bad necessarily, but the entire premise of Sabretooth got turned into a good person by a magic spell is crazy. This era lasts until December 2018 with the conclusion of Weapon X, in which Victor sacrifices himself, descending into hell in exchange for the resurrection of his son Graydon so that Graydon can have another chance at life. Do not worry about it. Completely feral and monstrous again, Victor is released into the wilds of Saskatchewan by Satan. I'm serious. He then turns up in the 2019 company-wide event War of the Realms, back to classic villain Sabretooth status. Victor joins forces with the dark elf Malekith, the guy from Thor 2 The Dark World. Magic chops his head off and throws it into limbo. I had not read this story until, like, yesterday. Wild stuff. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Sabretooth is one of countless mutants to join the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Teaming up with Mystique and Toad for an important Krakoan mission, he ignores orders and kills some humans on the way. Emma Frost manages to secure his release on diplomatic immunity grounds and takes him to face justice on Krakoa. There he is brought before the newly formed government body, the Krakoan Quiet Council. The council has just declared the killing of any human to be against the laws of Krakoa, and offer Victor one last chance that he will recant his crimes and follow the new rules. Victor refuses, and is damned to a pit beneath Krakoa for all eternity. He swears to slaughter all those present and exterminate their families. In the 2022 miniseries Sabretooth by Victor Laval and Leonard Kirk, the new king of Krakoan hell intends to make good on his threat. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. 
Hope you stayed with me through all of that. And if you didn't, here's the thing. Almost none of it matters. So don't worry too much <laughs> about it. <laughs> Victor, how are you doing? Thank you again for being here. Yeah, real good. This is a lot of fun. Good. I'm glad. It's funny. I don't think we've ever somehow actually like met in person. No, before, no. Because we've like been social media mutuals because of work, like my actual work that's not an X-Men podcast for many years, but I don't think we've ever like been at the same con or anything. So it's no, nice that's right. Speak with you actually. Same. So what are your favorite Sabretooth stories historically? Like what's the stuff that you think of when you think of this character? I loved the Lini Zauber call back in, uh, that first <laughs> glad. yeah i mean I like just... someone caught that her a couple people I, I was not the only one i saw a couple people go leany sauber i was like yes <laughs> we all are super unbelievable nerds yes well you know i mean what's the point of playing with this i mean him the iron fist one is a more obvious one yeah uh perhaps but um uh half the fun of his fantasy character. of chopping Iron Fist's arms off yeah. in this first issue was very funny. It was like I thought it would be a blast. taking it all the way back to Iron Fist. Yes. That guy pisses me off. Well, and to, to say like Sabretooth, I feel like is a dude who has he has never forgotten a single loss. No, those drive him crazy. That's right. This is where he gets to make up for them. My favorite. There's. I think it's even part of it, but uh, Mutant Massacre is my favorite, and Sabretooth is not central to that mm -hmm. but he is in many ways i think in his greatest element there killing the weak terrifying everyone being let loose as um as bad as you think everyone else is it's, uh, i'm forgetting his name was it harp is it is it harpoon who kills no no um it's colossus kills riptide riptide and riptide has killed a bunch of children mm -hmm. right well Grey Crow killed the children, but they've Grey all Crow killed children. I mean, everybody's yes. killing everybody. It's bad. Yes, it's the bad. marauders go down there. I mean, it is actually, it's not unlike what Claremont does in God Loves Man Kills with those yes. children. The first issue to 10, where Tommy, the Morlock, flees yes. through the streets, flees across the country because she has already fled to LA. They track her there and she then flees back to New York. They track her all the way to New York <laughs> and down into the tunnels and yes. now are like, you've led us to all of your friends and family and we're going to kill them we're too. We're going to kill them all. But first we're going to kill you. Yes. That issue is absolutely brutal and Sabretooth, yeah, is then really, I mean, that's my favorite Sabretooth stuff is the massacre because the massacre ends then with the issue with him and Betsy that is yes. endlessly fascinating to me. I yes. love that issue. Well, that, because isn't that her, like, that's when she That's when she joins show. the X-Men. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's when you really, like, this is why when Claremont gave him a backstory, it was, he is an evil rapist because- yes. That issue is, it makes it clear. The point of Sabretooth is he is a sexual violent threat, specifically. Yes. He chases Betsy through the halls of the X-Mansion in her nightgown. In her nightgown, yeah, yeah. Tears it to pieces, breaks her arm and her ribs. She has no combat skill, particularly. She was trained as an agent of strike, but like she doesn't have a weapon on her. Like I'm yeah. sure she could shoot him if she had yeah. a gun, but she doesn't have a gun. Right. You know, and she's not really a physical fighter because she was a telepath. She was a psi agent. Like she was just an espionage person. And she runs away to get him away from the infirmary where Sharon Friedlander and Moira McTaggart, notably, are taking care of the Morlocks who've survived and the yeah. X-Men who are in critical condition, uh, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus. 
as a Betsy super fan, mm-hmm. it's the quintessential Betsy issue for me. When Teeny quoted it at the end of Ten of Swords, I was like, ah, you know, because that stuff really gets me. That that story really gets me. But it's Sabretooth who emphasizes the way that Betsy as a woman mm-hmm. who isn't Storm, or I mean, Storm right. doesn't have her powers at that point, but you still can't but be she Storm. Still would, yeah. That's She's the thing, yes. you know? Betsy is someone who is like the everyday women, like Silver Fox, that Sabretooth typically hunts down and murders for sport. Yes. And she only manages to survive because her mutant mind is able to overcome that. Right. It's a very interesting story. And so to me, he always kind of has simultaneously been that boogeyman from that story. And then the incredibly sexy, giant, buff guy in a fur coat from the 90s, which is a very different character. (laughs) Well, I do think like part of the reason he's like even taking the Marauders, part of the reason why he has uh, survived so well is because he is all those evil things, but that without question the virile six foot six wild man part of him like you know uh, the last page of our issue of Sabretooth number one Mm -hmm. I sent Leonard this uh, painting called Lucifer uh, Calls to His Angels uh, which is this just old painting and Lucifer is a physically beautiful powerful being and I said if you can do something like this because I at the end I do want you to feel as though I do want you to feel like he's beautiful and terrifying right like and the two things in Sabretooth are go together right beautiful is maybe not the wrong one but like well no I get what you're saying and what's interesting to me about the way that he shifts in the 90s is like the mutant massacre era Sabretooth is not beautiful right like the Sabretooth Claremont Sabretooth is not sexually attractive that's not really where the character lives in that space the 90s saber tooth very the second jim lee draws him honestly and like with many characters the second jim lee drew you at that moment that's what you look like now forever (laughs) right yeah (laughs) i mean it's why betsy was in a japanese woman's body for 30 years because people loved that design too much to change it so similarly here with Sabretooth, it's like he shows up with Birdie in tow. That's right. His gun mall, who is telepathic and calms him down a little bit. And because mm-hmm. he's calmed down a little bit, now he can be more of a logical character. And now yes. that he's more of a logical character and a fun villain for the 90s, he's extremely hot. Yes. And that's like a very abrupt shift. But once you've taken a character and put him in the this character is sexy box, you can't quite pull them out, you know? Now the character being attractive is part of the character. And that creates, I think, a a slightly more usable character in the long Mm. run because Mm. the violent sexual threat abuser who is purely abject, like just something you don't want ever in your home under any circumstances, is to me less interesting than someone who, when you first see them, might be appealing and there's something underneath that you're not anticipating that's terrifying yeah i always sort of enjoy that a little more than bad people obviously looking like bad people right well it's the charles dickens thing right like uh in his descriptions of people you knew how if if someone was you knew if they were good or or evil immediately from their bodies like how they were described and feeling like that was a certainly a way that people thought once was that the the body determines all but of course uh Hopefully that is not the way we think of it now. Right. And I do think, you know, one of the things that is 
often very interesting about so much of superhero comics is how many villains are beautiful also, mm-hmm. right? And that sense of sort of saying like the vessel, like, a, and it can be even like, uh, if confusing is the wrong word, I mean, certainly why everyone has, I mean, why there was so much hard work done to make Electra into what she is now, the woman without fear, like, you know, uh, even from the beginning when Frank Miller had her, it was clear she was evil but not really she's too beautiful to be evil and so, yeah i mean electra assassin is one of my yes. favorites from that period be- i mean first of all like i would look at anything bill sinkevich draws yeah but also there was a heart to the character even under miller who sometimes is criticized for not yes having that and i think that is absolutely why she became i mean she's also a character who exploded in popularity in the 90s because we're yeah. doing this anti-hero thing electra and venom are great examples they were villains now they're anti-hero characters the punisher is the other punisher. huge one you yes. know sabretooth it was just always a little harder to retrofit that onto yes. him just making him hot isn't going to take you all the way there because like <laughs> no. you know cuz yeah. every ugly character in a comic book eventually becomes hot toad was hot for a while was he oh i didn't realize that after the movie, he was like, let's make Toad a normal guy if we can. You know, like everybody, that that's the thing is like, there's always that impulse to make every character, because part of the fantasy of superhero comics is that everyone's beautiful, everyone's right? Beautiful. That's right. With him, there's just a repeated beat again and again and again, where someone forces him to be good. Yes. Because that way... The character now is like a new character. because So Xavier throughout the early 90s, Xavier and Jean are like trying to rehabilitate him with telepathy. Yes. Because we want to have Sabretooth around, but we really can't justify that morally. So there has to be some kind of rehab process taking place. It never takes is the thing. Right. The most hilarious to me, honestly, was in Axis when they were like, now he's good because of magic. Because of magic. His personality has been inverted. And right. it's like, okay, but he's not going to stay that way forever, presumably. So, like, where does this go? I could imagine you sort of say, I want to use this guy. Like, there's a power, I think, in just saying, like, it's just... It's just it, whatever. It's just going to be what it is. Because then Greg Pak writes the Weapon X series yeah. where it's like, yeah, it's just Sabretooth who's inverted and is kind of a good guy now. And that, because really what it is at the end of the day is after their attempts, like let's rehab this character into a Venom or Electra or Punisher type character in the early 90s, then you get AOA where hmm. one of the things that's shocking is that Sabretooth is a hero. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so then that character AOA Sabretooth, who will later be called like Exile Sabretooth, like AOA Blink, who's his surrogate daughter. They have like a Wolverine and Jubilee or Wolverine and Kitty kind of relationship in AOA. Yes. Those characters were so popular that Exiles, the book, for like a million issues was really about them because we had to find a way to keep these two really popular characters from Age of Apocalypse alive without bringing them to Earth 616 where we already have a Sabretooth who's evil. So then after those characters were done, a lot of work has been put into how do we turn Blink into that character that people like from the AOA without it actually (laughs) being AOA Blink? And similarly, how do we turn Sabretooth into a character closer to the AOA Sabretooth. And I think that that's what the Axis inversion was. I think basically, right, yeah. there have been like 20 different times where someone brainwashes or influences mm-hmm. or memory warps Sabretooth into being someone you can hang out with. Right. And I liked that Hickman kind of reset that at the beginning yes. of House of X. If it's not a choice he made, it's less interesting, basically. Yes. yes. To me, like the other thing I thought, uh, at least when I was reading it and when I was thinking about this as a, 
a mini or maybe or a series of minis if we get to do that. Yeah, but cheers to open. I mean, based on the yes. response to the first issue, I think that it's my sincere bright. hope. Yes, it's my yeah. sincere, sincere hope. But I thought, in a way, Hickman, you know, like you're making the point earlier that part of Sabretooth's one of his flaws is that he's not a, he's not someone who thinks ahead. He's not someone who has plans. And I thought, number one, I think that he often people, some readers think he's that means he's stupid, and I don't think that that's the case. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's cunning but not necessarily erudite or book smart or anything like that. Not all the time, but uh, he makes essentially a pledge. And I took it as like a pledge when he says the thing about, I'm going to make your line extinct, your children's line extinct, yep. all of this. And for me, that was essentially like um, the first time you see Sabretooth say, I don't know what the plan is yet, but I have a plan. I have a goal. For me, the Sabretooth who I'm writing about is the Sabretooth who was smart enough, cunning enough to say, looking at this group of people, you think you have reached the pinnacle of mutantdom, but you are casting me out of heaven, casting me down into the pit. I'm going to make it my, my job to tear down what you have built. And I think I have a way, an interesting way to talk about that or for that to be like the journey of, of Sabretooth for a little while that lets you see that like a, once Sabretooth has a goal like that, something that expansive, he can actually be a profound threat because of his, uh, sub, his days as a covert op uh, and in black ops. Mm-hmm. He's not a person who's just going to come running at you with, an, with a tank. The whole point is that he's going to come at you in all these quiet, secret ways once he has everything set up. And so for me, that's like, the the saber tooth I'm writing, as opposed to the like you say the original version, which is pure uh, horror of like male sexuality, male uh, loathing unleashed. I'm not writing just that one or the one where he's the inverted hero. I don't think I'm writing that one. But that evil with a plan, I feel like potentially is a ter- is a terrifying uh, opponent. I agree, and I'm I'm just really captivated to see what you do with it. I know that you don't have too much more time, so I figure we should probably get into yes. the question and answer segment. We got so many questions for this episode, and again, Victor doesn't have that much time. So I apologize. I do have to get back to my kids. Yeah, no, bit. it's there's people have lives, and that's totally normal, and you should go and attend to your children. <laughs> you are their father. <laughs> Richard Luckritz writes, hey, Connor and Victor, I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about Sabretooth, a character that might be the most problematic of problematic faves in the X-Books. As someone who's a complete sucker for a badass beefcake and for edgy (laughs) antiheroes, I've always liked how despite his awful actions in history, he keeps ending up on X-Teams. A huge portion of Sabretooth and Wolverine's relationship is built around Creed trying to get Logan to admit he just loves killing, and they're essentially the same. What does it say about Logan that he spent the large portion of the last 10 years featured on the X-Men's murder squad, X-Force? For years, he fought against his murderous instincts and was regularly chastised by his teammates for his bloodlust, at least while actively serving on X-Teams. But these days, he's not only just straight up murdering everyone they come into conflict with, but he's encouraged to do so by Xavier and the rest. Was Creed maybe at least partially right about Logan? And how could this change their relationship going forward? What do you think about that? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, I think Ben made the point, uh, Ben Percy made the point in his uh, episode that uh, Wolverine and Sabretooth certainly are mirrors of each other. I mean, uh, um, Wolverine has lots of uh, antagonists, but Sabretooth, I think, has stuck around for a reason. One of the things I find very interesting about Wolverine and Sabretooth, I feel like 
imagining the comic book reader's mind, or maybe it's just my mind, I don't know, is that like Wolverine is what a person might hope they would be like if they were the feral powerhouse. Mm-hmm. And that Sabretooth is what a lot of people might fear they would be like. Setting aside the worst of him, but I just mean someone who would lash out at everyone, who would tear the throats out of anyone or everyone. I mean, I feel like that sometimes on the subway when I'm annoyed. And that in this way, like one is a sort of a nightmare of oneself, of one's worst self, and one is a dream of one's best self, right? Like the noble Ronin that is Wolverine. It's almost always sort of like, uh, everything is almost always uh, uh, seen through that lens for him, right? Right. And in fact, I would suggest, I could imagine if I was Sabretooth, it would be difficult to say that eight out of 10 times, me and him just did the same thing, but you cut him a break because he says the right thing about what he did. He says, I feel bad about this. He says, I don't want to do this. And then he goes and beheads a bunch of people. He says, and that same truth might say, I'm just admitting I like to do this thing. Exactly. Like we, we both enjoy that. I just yes. don't have a complex about it. And you do. And then I think in some ways, part of uh, what's interesting about the, about the, the two of them together is like, um, as readers, do we, will we forgive a lot as long as someone, or as humans, will we forgive a lot as long as someone performs guilt mm-hmm. or uses the right words about honor and all the rest. I mean, it's not entirely fair because I mean, Wolverine does, he went to go save Power Pack from Saint Wolverine Matisse. does do good stuff, but Wolverine yes. has a darker nature. And I think that that's why Sabretooth has been valuable to so many writers as a character, right? It's like, this yeah. is Wolverine unchained. This yes. is Wolverine without yes. morality. I mean, we haven't even mentioned that Claremont and Burns' intention was that Sabretooth be his father. Yes. Who has been tormenting him always. And that adds a, to take it back to Silver Fox for a second, that adds an interesting element because Burns' intention for Wolverine, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this in the show, was that his mother was First Nations. Oh, okay. And that never happens on the page. And then they made him like a white aristocrat in Wolverine yeah. Origin. So, yeah. but I choose to pretend Wolverine Origin didn't really happen. <laughs> Whatever. That's a don't worry about it for me. But there is a classic X-Men backstory that suggests that he has indigenous heritage as well. Yes. That's all been explained away as like Weapon X brain reprogramming or whatever. Right. But why would Weapon X make him think he was indigenous? I don't know. Odd choice. <laughs> But then it's like Wolverine is with a woman who reminds him in that sense of his mother. And then Sabretooth, who is his father, comes and rapes and murders her. Like, there's a layer there that we lose with that backstory getting lost. The idea that Sabretooth is Wolverine's father, which Mm -hmm. is no longer the case, but which is something that was bandied about a lot throughout these stories. And a couple times, like, is said, and then they're like, oh, nope, that was a Weapon X trick. Right. Symbolically, then, the question is, like, is Wolverine born out of this completely evil feral chaos into being that kind of person who can direct himself in such a way as to be useful to society or to not be a moral reprobate you know like that is i think the question there it still works as like a shadow self of like we're parallel individuals or whatever but i do think that that was sort of the question claremont was asking was like can there be order from chaos in that right Sabretooth being Wolverine's father also makes sense on a level of uh, how many people think like, well, the older generations, they didn't 
They didn't they did care about ways. this stuff. Right. Yes. Yeah. But I admit there's a part of me that would feel, I don't think, I mean, it couldn't work or whatever, I guess, but there's a part of me that would also be interested in Sabretooth being Wolverine's son. And the idea that, you know, Wolverine's having all these adventures, he's doing all these things. This is what happens when you don't care for your own. This is the result of that. This is your child run amok. And that the way, like, I mean, they'd never do that because in, in essence, that would put the blame for Sabretooth on Wolverine. Right. Right. And so you can't do that, I guess, for. Well, that's what in, in origin, initially, it seemed like the dog Logan character in the backstory was yes. going to be a saber tooth. And I'm glad that that isn't the case, because then similarly, it's like then Wolverine creates saber tooth. Yes. Which I don't think is the right way to go about that. Relationship. I think it couldn't you couldn't fix that thing. Yeah. I mean, that it, it, it would create then suddenly saber tooth's mark of Kane would get uh, passed up. Right, exactly, exactly. And it needs to be like a sin of the father, if anything. Yes, it does, it does. Chris O writes, My name is Chris O and I'm from Liverpool, England. You won't be able to do the accent as it's very regional. So if you do read this, thanks for lightening my day with your podcast. I'm going to try, I'm going to try. <laughs> Hello, Connor and Victor. I just want to say thanks for making this episode. Do the work you're doing and helping me fall in love with the X-World all over again. Sabretooth is a character that always freaked me out, probably due to how crazy jacked he looked in the 90s. This is getting a little Australian, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he always has carried this macho sexual energy in his appearances and sometimes not in a good way, I understand. With his parallels and rivalry with Wolverine, I'm not crazy for thinking he's had sex with men, right? Potentially even Wolverine? Chris, oh, you're not. And that is just, I'm just going to say, Sabretooth will fuck anything yes, he cares I mean, to fuck that's the point of the like the character is male sexuality completely unrestrained yes. and of course like uh uh the narrative that that kind of sexuality would only be with women is, is it's almost like uh it's like um the kind of things you might tell your kids so that uh they don't necessarily know everything you did exactly it's like almost homophobic to say this serial killer can't be bisexual <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little twisted when you think about the logic of everything. But yeah. like, no, but it's like he, I mean, here's the thing. If you go, I've mentioned many times, like Eve Kosofsky Cedric's Between Men on this podcast. Mm. There's all kinds of theory you could go into. But the Silver Fox story is very, very unequivocally a story about Sabretooth and Wolverine and about mm. the sexual drama between them. Yes. The psychosexual drama happening there. Particularly if you read him as is intended in that story as Wolverine's literal father. Right. Like, why else would Sabretooth know Wolverine's birthday? That's part of the point mm -hmm. of that story, right? There's a lot going on there. Now, in the world where they actually are father and son, I would hope that that's not a subject. Yeah. But in a world where that's not the case, and it's been established since the 90s that that's not the case, I do think that the psychosexual element there becomes almost by definition something you have to read as erotic because otherwise the characters don't make a ton of sense whether or not it's literally erotic or not it's there in the comic you know what i'm saying well and i think um i'm just thinking in particular i'm thinking of like uh when alan davis drew them fighting like mm -hmm. there's often 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 i mean alan davis draws beautiful men i think just in yeah. general yeah but like um that there's the way they're sort of entangling yes it's like the wrestling scene in Women in Love where it's like yes. these men are not actually having sex, but it's filmed in such a way as to suggest that. That's right. I think that's right. And uh, yes, so I say certainly seems to be there. Certainly seems to be there. 
Trinity B writes, hello, Connor and guest. I'll admit I'm a little nervous as I've never entered a question before, but I wasn't sure if you'd bring it up in this episode, so I thought I'd go ahead and ask. As a Wolverine fan, Sabretooth is, for better or worse, always lurking not far behind. I haven't read everything he's been in, but my main question is, does Sabretooth actually care about anyone? I know he cares about his mom, sometimes, and his son, Graydon Creed, sometimes, and I'm probably missing people, but I can't really think of anyone else except his sidekick, bodyguard, therapist, sugar baby, drug dealer, Birdie. Honestly, the only reason I read the night 1993 Sabretooth miniseries was I heard about her and I wanted to know why anyone would voluntarily work for Sabretooth. But I left with more questions than answers. I couldn't tell if she genuinely wanted to help him or if she was just trying to keep him happy so he didn't kill her. Yeah. I also couldn't tell if he liked her or if he was just addicted to whatever the glow was and couldn't live without it. I probably wasn't supposed to get attached to this very short-lived character, but I ended up feeling really bad for her and her situation. Now that the mutants are on an island where no one ever really stays dead, do you think she'll ever come back? Sorry for the long email, but your podcast is pretty much the only one I listen to and it's definitely a gift to X-Men fans and obsessive researchers like myself. Thank you, and please keep up the excellent work. Well, we can't talk about whether Birdie will be back on Krakoa because Victor's in the office, but yeah. I personally would like to see her, and I think that if there was ever a character who was begging to be back right now when we're all mm -hmm. talking about Sabretooth, that's a great choice in a world where we can bring characters back from the dead. I agree. <laughs> As for whether he cares about anyone, I think that starts to get into the psychology of a character who by definition is fictional, right? Like if you read him as a psychopath, which I think a lot of the writing would suggest to a reader over the years, then the question becomes like, can psychopaths and sociopaths care about anybody? Like, is that possible? What does it mean yeah. for someone with that kind of personality disorder to care about other people? That comes down to how you interpret it. In terms of the functioning in a story, I think he clearly is able to care to whatever extent, much like Mystique, actually, who is the mm -hmm. parallel character in a lot of ways. Mystique cares about Irene and Rogue, whether or not she's capable of love in a psychological sense. Sabretooth, similarly, I think did care about Birdie in whatever complicated way. And I think that he cares about logan in a way that is interesting like the obsessive way that he tortures logan for decades mm -hmm. the opposite of love is not hate it's indifference right is right. the cliche but like he has to care i mean now again the explanation that was given for it in one of those origin series was that this mysterious figure romulus told him to do all that stuff but i think that's dull right. i think that what's more interesting is saying why is he psychosexually violently obsessed with this guy and why has he been stalking him for decades throughout all of this stuff and what's fun about wolverine and sabretooth and this has sort of come back i think in the more recent stuff particularly percy's wolverine they don't quite remember <laughs> They don't really know why they're obsessed with each other. They just are. Yeah. And that makes them sort of mythic in a sense, because it's like, why do Ra and Apep fight? Like, because they have to, you know, yes. like. I think there would never be a satisfying single answer, right? Like they, if, if there, I can't imagine there would ever be a story or a comic that would say, literally, this was the moment when this hatred began and at all be satisfying because no matter what it was, it would never feel big enough yeah, for what exactly. it is, right? So I agree with you that it is essentially mythic at this point. Sabretooth has to haunt Wolverine because Wolverine can't ever wash himself entirely clean, right? Like it's, it's just not possible, nor should it be. I mean, I think the other thing that is um, like, to my mind, interesting or underneath there is also that if Wolverine could get rid of Sabretooth, there's a way that I feel like it's almost like he would be, then he would finally be done with his guilt. 
and his shame over the way he used to be. Mm-hmm. But a character like Wolverine can't exist without his guilt. It's not possible. Like he's built for that. And so Sabretooth serves that purpose. And as far as the other folks, I, you know, the only thing I would throw out there is I think there are certain people. I wonder, maybe to your point earlier, like you have to care about or like versus need, mm-hmm. right? And that there, I think, are a fair number of people who care about people as long as they need them, right? And that is what they, for them, that is caring. Absolutely. I want you to be okay because I need you to be okay. Because you're important to me, right? Like that. That's right. And that with Birdie, yeah, is exactly what that is. I think that's also, if one reads Mystique as a sociopath, I think that is how you can understand her genuinely loving relationships with Irene and Rogue because they're people that Mystique needs. They're important to Mystique's conception of self. Yes. And that is something that is primal, whether or not you are able to feel love in the traditional sense. But what it means to feel love is also an inherently subjective experience, right? Yes. So two questions that I'm just going to read together because they're sort of about a similar thing, which is just like tackling a character who does have some of these really heavy subjects Mm -hmm. inherent. And then there's one last question that is more of a general thought about your work that I thought was interesting. Megan Weichelbaum writes, Hi, Connor and illustrious guests. So excited to write into the pod. My question's about Sabretooth's violence against women and his past as a rapist. Part of his origin story as a villain in relationship with Wolverine begins with the rape and murder of Silver Fox. It seems like Sabretooth has swung wildly between villain and antihero, and I don't know how his past as a rapist has been addressed during all those swings. I'm here to ask Victor how he will discuss this if he plans to at all. As a reader, I'm struck by the redemptive arcs characters who've been cast as rapists often go through as somewhat trite. I believe that people can change, but from personal survivor experience, nobody in my life has ever come to me with as much as an acknowledgement of their abuse. Not that I want one at this point, haha. So many abusive people wear blinders and are incapable of self-examination out of fear. I'm very excited to read this comic. Apologies for the long question. I'm so excited. And despite all this heavy talk, I relate to your Mystique and Val Cooper guest, Patrick Sullivan Connor, because Sabretooth is low-key sexy. <laughs> I've listened to every episode of this podcast. This is my first time writing in and it gets me through long-ass days of document scanning. LOL. Love this podcast, Connor. Best of wishes for the new year. This is my first time writing in. All my love, Meg. Well, thank you for writing in, especially with something so personal. Similarly, Walter Llewellyn wrote, Hello, Connor and Mr. Laval. One of the things I've loved about Cerebro has been getting exposed to unfamiliar viewpoints. For this straight, white, able-bodied cis man, the not-flat-scan lenses that others bring to the X-Men have radically redefined my own experiences for what these characters and comics in general can mean. Well, that's very sweet. Thank you for sharing that. Before Cerebro, Walter continues, one of the biggest shifts in the way I consume art came courtesy of my wife, who's an advocate for domestic violence prevention and awareness. Her perspective has, among other things, made me much more sensitive to fiction that depicts stalking, strangulation, or other forms of intimate partner abuse. Victor Creed's violence is nothing if not intimate. Now that I know how common it is for abusers to continue exercising violent control over their partner's lives long after they've fled a domestic violence situation. Sabretooth's obsessive stalking of Logan, to use one example, seems much more real and horrifying to me than standard comic book villainy. If anything, Creed's own history of childhood abuse, hurt people, hurt people, and occasional flirtations with redemption, maybe he can change this time to help him fit the traditional DB profile even more. Apologies for the long preamble, but what are the challenges of telling stories about a comparatively realistic villain like Sabretooth in this fantastical setting, especially at a time of relative 
hope and optimism for mutant kind? Do you feel any particular responsibilities as a writer when you have a character who may remind readers of their own traumas? Thank you both for your time and the wonderful things that you put out into the world, Walt Llewellyn. P.S. Just to clarify in case it comes up, I don't mean to suggest at all that fiction shouldn't contend with trauma or situations that might be challenging for readers with PTSD, etc. I'm just curious how a thoughtful writer reckons with those challenges. Thanks. We didn't think you were saying that. It's fine. Don't worry about it. These are tricky issues. Yes. Generally speaking, what's your approach to this question? Well, the in a way, the thing that I'm, luck, I'm lucky to uh, be able to do with this Sabretooth thing is I don't, like, there was no push to say like by the end we all have to like him and right you know, we don't have to redeem this guy he right. doesn't have to be redeemed and i i i came into it with the idea that like uh the whole point is he is irredeemable and the system we have is also irredeemable so if you put those two things together what you could what you get is potentially a good conversation argument i uh, pro, a way of thinking through how do we deal with the worst of them? Because they're the ones we don't really want to deal with, right? Uh, because right. they're the ones who don't want to be changed. They are not apologetic. Uh, in fact, if given the opportunity, they will take advantage again. And, you, and we know this. And yet, we probably can't just kill them. So what do we do? So for me, the big thing was like, I, I knew I was not going to try to fix Sabretooth. I was not going to try to absolve Sabretooth. And in fact, I thought there was something very powerful about leaning into the idea that he cannot be redeemed and we still have to wrestle with what we do with him and people like him. And then what do we do with those people who might be on a scale also troubling, but not as troubling? Like, where does this, like, where do we, where do we cut off our system? Necra's pretty bad. She's not as bad as Sabretooth. What do you mm -hmm. do with her? Yes. What do you do with all of these people who are varying levels of bad? Yes. In a system that is fundamentally unjust itself. Well, especially if the narrative, like it's the hard part of saying, you know, like you can't say there are no prisons and then just call it something else, right? Like a... Um, the idea that that a, a nation or a group of people or even a person can sort of uh, be above having to at least admit what we're doing with these people, mm -hmm. right? Like that, that to me is the thing that the story gets to do, it gets to wrestle with how do we reconcile these things as opposed to how do we make you like Sabretooth? That is not my goal uh, in any way beyond you have to be invested in the story, but like, that's you know, right. we're not trying to make you think what a great guy, let's get a beer. Well, and that's right. The story is not let's fix Sabretooth. The story is what do we do with Sabretooth and those like him? And I think that that can be an interesting, dramatic tale because the inevitable sort of second part of that is one way or the other, it's going to come back to us, mm -hmm. right? It is going to come back to us. You can't lock everyone quote unquote bad away forever you can't right and so what do we do but if we're kicking the can down the road as they say you know like what happens when there's no more road well particularly on krakoa when mutants are now functionally immortal yeah you can't really kick the can down the road to the next generation because you are i mean it you are it. it's fixed the sliding time scale almost right because now none of the characters should age yes. so <laughs> like what do we do if 
you can't put Sabretooth away for 20 years because we're all still going to be here. That's right. Including his victims. And he won't age. Right. Like none of us are going to age. So what does that mean? And how do you punish an immortal? How do you do any of that? Last question. Zach Jenkins of ComicsXF writes, Hello, Connor and esteemed Mr. Laval. So much of your work, Victor, deals with how we react to religion and how it shapes our frame of reference for the world. I'm thinking of the washerwomen in The Big Machine and the devil in The Devil in Silver. Similarly, the collected edition of your Sabretooth miniseries is called The Adversary, and the first issue is about Sabretooth creating Krakoan hell. What is it about our cultural response to religion that makes it a fertile ground for your stories? I find it fascinating that you aren't really talking about cosmology or the nature of the universe, but rather how our attempts to understand it as a people have in turn shaped our culture. Thrilled to have you working on a Sabretooth book. Thrilled to have you writing, period. All the best, Zach. That's very kind. Yeah, I mean, I guess... um... I guess I'm, I was raised in a relatively, I think a relatively religious family. My uh, grandmother and uh, my mom's side of the family are from Uganda. They're Mm -hmm. Episcopalian there, but Episcopalian there is not a, is like, is not like Episcopalian. Very different. Yeah. Very, very different. Very, very hardcore. My aunt actually does a lot of work in Uganda Okay, as an attorney. So I'm, I like weirdly happen to be familiar. To know that. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, so it's a, it's deeply religious, but it, but in a way, like, a, but then my family is a very, very, um, how to say it, like, just nuts and bolts kind of family, right? So, like, our ideas about God and faith and all that stuff weren't really about God in a way. They were much more about earthly things mm-hmm. and much more about how, about um, uh, this idea, like, my grandmother's idea on some level might have been that if we didn't have faith, if we didn't have Jesus specifically, if we didn't have that, human beings would become animals, would be devils. And, you know, f- her example for that was uh, the British in Uganda and then two sets of Ugandan dictators, all of whom, all three of uh, those groups were monstrous, monstrous. And uh, none of them in the end, for to her mind, would be uh, particularly religious. Right. Right. They were uh, uh, real world evils. And so I think... Uh, if that is a part of uh, my work, and I do agree that it rarely goes up to like the cosmic, it stays very much grounded in the, in the real. I think it's this, I, uh, there's often a way that I'm wrestling with the question of like, well, what do, like, if, how, do, how do we use religion as a tool as opposed to how does God work in our lives and all this stuff, right? Like uh, Kurt, I feel like uh, uh, Nightcrawler's uh, perspective is often much more like, God gives something called a conscience or a, a sense of good to us, like it's almost a gift to us from God. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like uh, um, maybe, at least as I'm thinking of it, Sabretooth's idea of, say, the cosmology of hell, or even like what hell is, is just all of these things are a thing we make. It's a tool we can use, and how will we use it to destroy the world? or to fix the world, but it's ours. It's not God. Like it, it, it isn't really about all that. Maybe it's a kind of a, that growing up in a very religious household, but then having my mother who was at heart, she was religious, but deep down she, she didn't actually believe it worked. She didn't believe it was worth anything because uh, it didn't seem to make Ugandan's lives any better. And then coming to the US, as far as she was concerned, uh, like I remember her saying to me once, it was like a profound moment. She's like, I don't believe in God, but I do think I believe in the devil. 
because just look how our people catch hell everywhere on this earth. Damn. And I was just like, all right, mom, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> let's watch Family Feud and eat a TV dinner now. Right, right. Well, I mean, like I've mentioned a lot on this podcast, but like, so I wasn't raised religiously Jewish. And as an adult, I've pursued my bar mitzvah and did all of that stuff. One of the first things I said to the rabbi was like, the reason I've been hesitant to do this is that I'm not sure I believe in God. And he was like, well, that's not the question. The question is like, what does the idea of God make you feel? Mm-hmm. I also caught the title, The Adversary, for the collection. Yeah. Hasatan in Hebrew, the adversary obviously is uh, Satan, the devil. Yes. But in the Torah, Satan, the adversary, is someone who actually works for God. He's almost the devil's advocate, right? right. He's the person right. who is arguing with God about the condition of man generally this is all in the book of job which is a real rough read if yeah that's a, a rough one um <laughs> and a, and, a, and a weird one one that's yes. hard to square with the idea of a loving god and mm-hmm. so i like the idea of Sabretooth as a devil in service of the god that is the krakoan state in the sense of He's the one who challenges, who indicts the project. Yes. It's also interesting, of course, because the adversary is also the name of an X-Men villain who is functional in a similar way. Sort of like the opposite number to Roma and Merlin. Right. Just a lot of interesting X-Men stuff there. Yes. But I definitely, it's a great call out because I definitely wanted, uh, uh, certainly the adversary is a satanic reference to Satan, but... But specifically in his role as yes. the person questioning God. Yes, and and in and that his like his very exist everything about his ex- existence in the pit and as the story will go forward is a rebuke or a, an argument against what at least in Hoxpox, Xavier and Magneto say this is right, right, and that no one was better for the role because he's the only one who was cast down. Mm-hmm. You know, it, like it just was a given. I said, like, well, literally, he's cast down. He's got to be the adversary. And like, talk about sympathy for the devil. I mean, right? Yes. It's the character that you most don't want to sympathize with. Yes, the situation is one where you can't sort of help but feel for him. Sympathy for the situation of the devil. We'll put it that way, since you don't have to like him. Sympathy for the devil's predicament. Yes. You know. Yes. <laughs> well, Victor, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your support of the podcast in general. You've been really For sure. Great. This was a blast. Thank you. I'd love to have you back sometime. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Sabretooth or about what you plan to do with this book or any hints, teasers, anything you want to say for the listeners out there before we wrap up? Well, I guess I would, uh, the only thing I'll say is like, uh, I think there's a lot of ways the first issue suggests we're going to go and I'd like to promise we're going to go very different directions. That's exciting. Throughout this story. Yes. It seems like one thing, it might become another thing and then another thing after that. And I hope that will be really fun and exciting and, you know, keep up a level of like, Oh, I didn't think it was going to go there Mm -hmm. for this series uh, while still making sense, you know, not seeming like suddenly, Galactus is in the pit. Right. No, it has to be. It's logical, <laughs> it's but it also logical. isn't necessarily going to be on rails in the way you might. That's think. right. That's right. Narratively speaking. 
Well, Victor, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything that you want to plug besides Sabretooth, which is now available in comic book stores near you, listener. The best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm just at, at Victor Laval. Other than that, there's some books coming down the line, but not till fall of this year. Mm-hmm. Spring of next year is a ways away. So uh, uh, I'll be shouting more about that in the future. Feel free to go to VictorLaval.com and read all about those. Sure. Yes, for sure. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast for $5 a month, the House of Zaladine tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast. You can get an ad-free experience MP3 ad-free versions of every episode the minute that they go up, plus secret files, bonus episodes. Some really fun ones are coming down the pipe soon. I know I say that every week, but I swear to God, there's cool (laughs) stuff coming. (laughs) um, Next week's episode will feature Kat Overland of Women Writing About Comics on Chamber, Jono Starsmore, famously of Generation X, and then honestly, not a whole lot else, but he's been around and hopefully he'll be around again. (laughs) I'm excited about this episode. He's a fun character. Thank you, as always, for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all your emails. I can't tell you guys how crazy it is to see the response to every episode of this that comes out. And I'm excited to keep doing it until you're all sick of hearing it. (laughs) Until next time, everybody, thank you again, and bye. Goodbye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men.